listening to the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that exhumes horror films from the past and present for a loving autopsy. Tonight's subject is a 40-year-old slasher film that refuses to stay dead, John Carpenter's 1978 classic, Halloween. I'm John Evans, and I'm joined, as always, by my two podcasting partners in crime. The first is a gentleman who definitely agrees with me that Ben Tramer is dreamy. That would be Vikram Wheat. How are you today, Vic? I do, I do love Ben Tramer. <laughs> Everybody does. He's he's a great date for the, the formal, I'll tell you. you know, he'll, he'll bring you a corsage and everything. How are you tonight, uh, Vic? Everything good? I'm, I'm doing well, John. I'm, I'm, if somebody brings me a corsage, I am ready to put out. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah. And our other uh, co-host, of course, is uh, a man who has multiple William Shatner masks around his house. That is Michael T. Kuchak. How are you, Mike? What up, man? I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fighting a bug. I'm fighting a bug. Uh, I'm, I'm just about to crawl out from underneath it, but I'm not uh, 100% crawled yet. My, my kung fu is still hovering in about like the high 80s. I, I, I rallied enough to uh, crawl out from under the couch womb and uh, make this podcast because it's an important one. It's a yes, milestone. It yes, it is. This is the film that inspired uh, indirectly or directly the uh, franchise that we began a little podcasting journey with. Of course, I'm referring to Friday the 13th. Um, it all began with Psycho and um, Black Christmas and then Halloween happened. So I think it's it's definitely high time. That we dug into this franchise, and just to let everyone know, it is our intention to work our way through all of the Halloween films, hopefully culminating with the new one, which comes out in October, I believe, of 2018. Uh, well, at, at, our usual, at our usual pace of production, we should barely <laughs> make it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, we're going to have to pick up the pace, I think. I still am one of the people who marvels at... At least intrigued by the fact that Danny McBride is co-writing the film with uh, David Gordon Green. I used to just in the the, the uh, weirdest six degrees of Kevin Bacon connection. I used to work with Jody Hill on the Real World Road Rules Challenge. In fact, that's well, I won't say some of these things in public. I used to work with Jody Hill, and we had some connections outside the office. And uh, uh, Jody used to talk all the time about how he had this script that he was going to make and it was going to be awesome about this like kung fu teacher, karate teacher or something. Mm -hmm. And of course, I mean, reality television is filled to the gills with people who are set to be the, you know, oh, I've got this great movie I'm going to make and I'm going to get into scripting and blah, blah, blah. And so we all sort of brush it off like that until he made the foot fist way with Danny McBride and then went on to create Eastbound and Down for HBO. So I'm delighted to find that the, 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 the world, some of the people that he helped found and create are now helping to uh, uh, bring about a new iteration of Halloween. Yeah, I love that as well. I recently, Kim and I, watched uh, The Foot Fist Way for the first time and uh, really enjoyed it. We've been, a, we've been big fans of McBride since, uh, well, you know, she and I watched Eastbound and Down together. But, of course, you know, uh, I would say the first time I saw him was probably in something like uh, Pineapple Express or, you know, I don't re recall right now. But I think, weirdly, this is an interesting choice and I can't wait to see the impact that he has on it. And I can't see how it would be a negative impact. I, I like this the way these, you know, disparate individuals are coming together on this project based on their previous work. 
Um, Jody Hill, obviously, I, I like to um, observe and report quite a bit more than most people did. So mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued by this. It's so odd that if their take wasn't brilliant, they wouldn't do it. Yeah, like there's you know? a reason those guys are doing this movie. No doubt yeah, exactly. About it. And, yeah. John, and John Carpenter himself has signed off on it. So what a great place to start this journey uh, with the original uh, John Carpenter version of this and hopefully, uh, as you said, land on the newest version of it. Yeah, so customarily we always begin with going around the horn and talking about the first time we saw the film. I'm just going to kick that off by, I don't really recall when I saw this film the first time. It's, it was that long ago. It was definitely in the first 25 or 30 horror films that I ever saw. And while it definitely affected me, and I remember particularly Annie's death uh, disturbing me at whatever teenage uh, time or pre-teenage time that was, I can't really put my finger on it. So what I'm actually going to say is that this has gone back to uh, the way that I used to operate with uh, our Friday podcast, where I've seen the film twice in preparation for our show. Uh, one time, hi. So <laughs> that always yields some interesting notes. <laughs> so hopefully that won't get too weird as I go through my, my <laughs> spiels along the way. How about you, Mike? What was your first experience with Halloween? I think uh, I have to draw a quote from uh, uh, Ellen Ripley. Uh, you know, this movie has been in my life for so long. I can't remember a time when it wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it came out uh, early enough that I was a wee lad when it was in the theater. Uh, I, in all likelihood, saw it on cable, you know, the first time. And uh, there, there were like a, a few of the classics that I saw on, I won't say like maybe HBO perhaps even a TV cut because a lot of the, the stations would run horror movies on Halloween and I'd sit in the, our, our family room slash basement type situation and uh, watch them in the dark. And uh, that's how I caught like a lot of the really early classics like psycho and, and this one, you know? So Mm -hmm. yeah, no huge story. I was a kid. It was on Halloween. I saw it. It scared the fuck out of me. Oh boy, it scared the pickles out of me. But uh, you know, I, I've loved it so much since then that I make a tradition of watching this movie uh, every Halloween. Wow. Yeah, I, I would yeah. comment that I've seen it so many times that over the years that I would say, like, maybe there's one or two Friday the Thirteenth films that I've seen as many times as Halloween, but I may mm-hmm. have seen Halloween more times than any one Friday the Thirteenth movie, if that makes any sense. Uh, yeah. Of course, I, I too was too young to have seen it in the theater. I was three when this movie came out. So, mm-hmm. uh, Vic, how about you? What's your relationship with John Carpenter's Halloween? I'm so excited for this because I feel like for the first time on this podcast, I actually have a mildly interesting story about the first time <laughs> that I saw this. Whoa! Um, <laughs> our first is... mildly interesting story on this entire podcast. <laughs> but here's what happened with Halloween. My stepsister and I, uh, my stepsister's name was Stacy. She got me into horror films uh, when my mother married my stepfather, and we suddenly were just trolling the aisles of the video store getting these movies at such a random clip that because Halloween was out, we picked up Halloween 2. And so we just went home and put on Halloween 2. And what you will notice is that Halloween 2 begins with Loomis shooting Michael Myers six times and he falls off of the balcony. And, you know, come on, Vic. (laughs) Uh, 
And uh, Jamie Lee Curtis says, was that the boogeyman? And he says, as a matter of fact, it was. And then the screen goes black. And we went, what the fuck? And we stopped the movie and we hit rewind. And it started up again. And that was where it started. And we were like, well, this is, this is broken. Like, obviously, <laughs> they only put the last three minutes of the movie on here. Mm-hmm. And we literally went back to the video store and complained. <laughs> and the clerk at the video store was like, Ugh, yeah. please just get the first Halloween and go home and watch that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, allow me to explain That's the concept of a, re- of a recap to these two children. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so that was how we wound up getting the first, uh, the, the first copy of Halloween taken home. And it was subsequently one of the first movies I owned on VHS. Uh, and I watched so many times that it's, it's a little bit like the shining where it's one of those movies that it's hard for me to still be scared by because I know it so well. But in rewatching it for the podcast, I was actually pleasantly surprised by how drawn into it I was and how many thoughts I had watching it again. It's the movie it is because it's so amazing. Um, I think Mike alluded to the TV cut. I never saw that, but it's on the Blu-ray that I have. And so for the first time, I watched some scenes that uh, would slot in early in the film. And then I read today that those were actually shot during the making of Halloween 2. Because hmm. that was when they were going to be, they were cutting the deal with NBC for the TV version, and they needed this extra footage for whatever reason. It's not like they had to cut out a lot of uh, violence and nudity from the film, but yeah, so they shot this stuff and put it in um, in like 1980 or 81, which is interesting. Have you guys seen that footage, by the way? I, I have a distinct recollection of the scene in which Loomis is talking to young Michael in the asylum, mm-hmm. but there's other stuff I don't remember it. That's that's the main thing, but I'll bring it up when we get there. Uh, so, of course, right before we get started, uh, I will make a couple of comments um, prefatorily that there's some sad aspects of this. It's 40 years later, obviously, but a lot of people are dead. Um, Deborah Hill's dead. Uh, Mustafa Akkad is dead. He died in really tragic circumstances in 2006. Yeah, a terrorist attack, yeah. yes. Yes, uh, he and his daughter I guess that's that's inevitable, but you know, this, the, the, there are definitely some sad stories associated with this. And um, moving on, I just want to say uh, because we live in LA, that the one um, note for um, production purposes um, I find funny that yeah, the, the film was filmed in West Hollywood and South Pasadena. Uh, the murder houses are in WeHo, the, the two main houses that a lot of the action uh, takes place in. So if you want to go there, guys, uh, we could we could arrange that. I've been out here for over 15 years now, and I have yet to make that pilgrimage. Uh, I, I keep meaning to, kind of the same way that I keep meaning to go to the Getty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never quite make exact it Exact same thing. Exact same thing, Mike. <laughs> similar. Sure. Well, if you're, a, if you're a horror nerd, then they're absolutely analogous. I, uh, I will point out a, a friend of mine on Facebook uh, went to the house – from the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you can now go, it's like a bed and breakfast, and you can go and have breakfast. It's just outside of uh, Austin, Texas. So you, hmm. you Google that. I don't remember the exact thing. And I think they actually relocated the house. But it's he to show, he, he uh, posted some pictures, and it's a perfect recreation. It's pretty fascinating. I, I, I immediately showed them to my, my wife, who's from Houston, and said the next time we're there, we have to go have breakfast there. I don't care if it's three hours away. I think you should mm-hmm. wait till lunch and make sure you have the barbecue, if you know what I'm hey! saying. Hey! It's funny because steak. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder if you have to pay extra for a giant nest of daddy long legs. 
<laughs> Complimentary with every uh, brunch. <laughs> with every brisket. <laughs> All right, so let's okay. get cracking. Uh, the film opens on Halloween night, 1963, in Haddonfield, Illinois, where uh, we have this lurky point of view, which by now has become pretty familiar to anyone who watches horror films. We're in someone's eyes prowling around the outside of this house. I think that night itself, uh, the night of Halloween, is pretty intrinsically uh, woven into the film, even if we don't get into the Samhain or mythologies that get woven in later and that were said mm -hmm. to be intended, just not really present in this film. Because we begin with children chanting some kind of Halloween-themed rhyme and uh, there's a line later about um, that Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode, drops for no apparent reason as far as mythology, but she says that the boogeyman can only come out on Halloween night, just something that I, I do think that Deborah Hill uh, and John Carpenter were exploring in the, in the script. So it does kind of begin to answer the question of why now for Michael. Um, we don't know why it would be this Halloween night, but the night itself is definitely woven tightly into the fabric of the film. One of the first things that you see is the flickering jack-o'-lantern, mm -hmm. and that's under our opening credits and under our opening our, our main theme. And it immediately sets the mood, and it's fantastic. And then we go to black, and we get the kids and their chanting, and it's, uh, it's a nice way to let the audience know that there's trick-or-treaters out, the streets are full of kids, it's Halloween, they're trick-or-treating without having to actually dump a bunch of kids into a scene yeah, in a street, uh, at least until later. And we open on you know the house and the POV with Michael. Later, we, we can ask, boy, isn't it an amazing coincidence that this guy just so happens to escape from the asylum or be able to escape from the asylum on Halloween you know, when he's old enough to uh, go on a murderous rampage? And I, I think that when I was re-watching this, the latest of you know, literally dozens of times, it was really underscored to me throughout the entire film that it's very, very much driven by, uh, like an urban legend. You know, it feels like the entire script is coming from, uh, campfire stories. Uh, you know, the kind of stories that you tell with a flashlight held under your chin, you know, it, it, it kind of has that logic and it also has that kind of narrative musculature and it's kind of, it's, Combined with the kind of, uh, uh, I would say, psychosexual sicknesses inherent to Psycho and Black Christmas. So, you know, he murders his sister, uh, perhaps because she's not taking good care of enough of him. You know, she'd rather fuck than, uh, than watch after him. She's very flippant when the guy's just like, where's your... Where's your brother? He's like, ah, oh, he's around somewhere. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes. and uh, uh, also we get the the POV and the heavy breathing and the mask, and uh, especially when we come to that POV, uh, you know, he's heavily breathing and staring at his uh, semi nude sister through the you know through this the eye holes, and it's like, yeah, you know, I and mean, it's it combines perfectly, you know, that element of urban legend folklore and Halloween stories with the queasy psychosexuality of the two films that had the most to do with this film existing. Oh, absolutely. There, there are several elements that later movies try to create a mythology around, you know, why can 
you pump uh, uh, six rounds into Michael Myers and he flies off the thing and he just kind of gets up and walks away. You know, why does he have this connection to, uh, you know, uh, to this uh, holiday and, you know, is he, is he really pure evil? Is he like a spirit in, in human form? Blah, blah, blah. And I, I mean, that mythology only kind of comes later because in this movie, it's just the kind of thing that happens in this kind of urban, in, in the campfire story. You know, I mean, of course, you know, a maniac breaks out on Halloween night when a lightning strike knocks out the uh, the power in the asylum in a, in a thunderstorm, and the uh, uh, and then he goes back, and then the girl is, you know, to the point where it was even a cliche by '78, the idea of the escaped lunatic from the asylum, right? I mean, that, yeah, that wasn't yeah. even a new idea at that point. When you talk about the the campfire story nature of this backstory and it does have a certain simplicity to it that lends to that i think you could you probably used a very similar language in talking about the history of jason mm-hmm. and so there is a which was i'm sure in some sense just a, a copying of this but there's also a way in which those are just the stories that we tell and so I think that it, it does become those things. And the other thing about it and the, the specificity of Halloween is something else that we talked about in the first Friday the 13th podcast, which is that it has about it the sense of portents. I mean, I remember we t- talking about the, the girl's dream with the, I feel like the rain of blood, you know what I mean? Like that, that anything could happen on this very strange night on which Friday the 13th takes place. And Halloween carries that same sense intrinsically. And I think that the, the, the other mirror image of the film, the, the reason that sense of anything can happen, weird things can happen, so much of this is grounded in reality until that very last moment when Dr. Loomis looks over the balcony and sees that Michael Myers is gone uh, in much the same way that everything that happens in Friday the 13th is grounded in reality until the end when Jason resurrects himself from the lake and pulls her down into the, into the water. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's the kicker that, you know, that, that makes the campfire tale that much more fun. And then he was, and then he was gone. But more oh. than that, I think it's the sense that because of the night on which it happened, mm-hmm. otherwise unbelievable things are possible. And whereas in Friday the 13th, it needed a little more bells and whistles for us to buy into it. When you say it happened on Halloween, we buy into it intrinsically. And I think that's one of the uh, many reasons that this is probably the superior film. Yeah, and I, I would say, uh, especially looking at the the many descendants of Halloween in terms of the slasher genre or even the horror genre as a whole, as time goes on, the backstories that motivate the narrative become increasingly convoluted, uh, especially in like the aughts when it's you know these weird, twisty, vastly deep stories. And when, when with Halloween, it's like, why does Michael Myers do this? Because he's crazy. Why does he do it today? Because it's Halloween. It's like that's all you need to know. It's like, you know, yes. a, like it does kind of uh, invest him, as Vic was alluding to, into this extra. I guess what's the opposite of pixie dust? It would be demon dust or something in this case. Yeah. You know, this sort of evil magic to it. But the concept of evil itself as being independent of psychosis or 
mental illness of any kind keeps coming up in the context of Loomis, who is this man of science, this uh, psychiatrist, psychologist, uh, devotee of the you know the cerebral workings of of humanity is convinced in a you know almost supernatural or superstitious way that this this man transcends human boundaries like he he makes many allusions to that and and he uses the word evil and the word evil comes up a lot uh it's even uh in graffiti on the on the wall as uh Laurie passes a wall in her neighborhood at one point, which I don't think is a, an accident either. So we're just kind of developing this idea that in a way this film jumps ahead evolutionarily of what it took Friday the 13th several movies to do, which is even though there is a grounded, non-supernatural, uh, superficial layer of logic that is the dominant layer of logic in this movie by, by yeah, it, it's it, it's driven by a, a sense of the supernatural from the first moment because uh, yeah, I mean Michael Myers is Halloween. He's this he's the evil spirit of Halloween, uh, and you're absolutely right because I Loomis is supposed to be like super psychiatrist guy, and but never at a moment does he use any kind of clinical terms. Yeah, you know, to just to describe what's going on with Michael Myers, he always uses this very broad mythological terms. He's evil, pure evil. There's nothing there but evil. I've stared into this boy's eyes for uh, ten years plus. There's nothing there but pure evil. You know, when uh, the characters are reacting to what they've experienced, I'm talking about you know close to the very end, and it's like, so what happened? And nobody says. I was attacked by a crazy guy who got out of the asylum. I was attacked by some weirdo in a mask. It was, I was attacked by the boogeyman, mm-hmm. you know? And I think in, I, I haven't read the script in a very long time, but from what I recall, it was just called the shape. Yeah. Well, there's a moment where the kid, Tommy spies, uh, Michael across the street, peering into the window that Annie is within. Um, she's in the kitchen of the house across the street, the Wallace house. And he mm-hmm. immediately turns around without any um, hesitation and reports to Jamie Lee Curtis, Laurie Strode, that the boogeyman is here. Now, yeah. his friends have been, or not his friends, his classmates have been harassing him all day and maybe for longer about the boogeyman coming for him. So they mm-hmm. planted the idea of the boogeyman, but he immediately plugs this silhouette uh, 500 yards away into, into that mythology. It's the kind of thing that you expect a little kid to say, but then when Laurie Strode says it, yeah, uh, the boogeyman, you know. Uh, At the very end of the, the film, she says, was it the boogeyman? And yeah. I believe uh, the, the response that Loomis gives is, you may be right. In a way, it's Lovecraftian. And if you use that term, then you're immediately thinking of interdimensional beings and tentacles and all that shit. But I, in in this case, I'm using the term Lovecraftian to imply that a man, a, a learned man of science has become convinced that it's a supernatural situation. And it's driving and, him a little mad. Yeah, it? yeah, because I, I mean, everyone thinks that he's a kook. You know, he's not showing up and being, I, I, and it's very rare that he's, I, 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 there, there are portions of the movie in which he's accorded with some respect, but just as often the cops think that he's, he's a little nuts. And I, I wonder if he's, because he, like you just mentioned, his sanity has been rocked by encountering this this fiend 
There is definitely reason to believe, like not looking at any of the other films or anything other writers ended up uh, baroquely piling on to this franchise. Like, let's put all of that aside. And even putting aside mm-hmm. what we may glean about the intentions of, of Carpenter and Hill, I think from just reading the film, even though he has and there are thematic underpinnings of, of sexual panic and teen lust is basically the, the theme of every character's story in this mm-hmm. movie, um, all the young characters. Yeah. Putting all of that aside, you definitely very much have to see the possibility that something, some demonic force entered this kid on on Halloween night. And yeah. he has been its willing vessel ever since. Well, because but- Yeah, there, there is a possibility that it has happened right here because, you know, observe the behavior of his sister. If he was a really weird, spooky, violent child before this, then they wouldn't just ignore his, you know, his presence or non-presence. Yes. You know, we, we have, and there, there's every possibility that he was just a normal kid right up until this moment, because when the boyfriend is just like, Hey, where's your brother? And she's like, I don't know. He's around, you know, it's like, if this was a kid who would like, bite your fingers at the dinner table, you wouldn't be so flippant about where he's at. You know, you'd want to make sure that he was tied to a chair in the basement before he got naked in the same house with this kid. And when the parents come home and they find him standing there with the knife, they're just completely confused. And I get nothing from their uh, acting, you know, and they don't have lines per se, but like I get no vibe at all that they're like, oh, Michael just killed Judith. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's just confusion. It's like, why is our kid staying staying in front of the house? Oh, he's got a knife in his hand. And then they're, you know, obviously Carpenter just told them to freeze in Tableau so he could pull that cool crane shot over them, you know. So there's nothing else to be gleaned except for the image of him. But damn, my impression of Michael Myers is that is not that he was possessed by something on this night, but rather that something drained out of him the way that that uh loomis talks about him is of a person without a soul i mean it's it's you can make a case if you're trying to make a spiritual explanation for a psychopath for someone with no empathy and everything else but there's also this kind of rage inside of him i would agree that it does seem like something very specific happens to him on this night and I almost would argue that the the psychosexual component of it, which is so obvious when you watch it now, was just sort of subconscious on the part of uh, John Carpenter, who has said repeatedly that this was it was not his intention that this was going to be some kind of moral uh, sermon on sexuality in teenagers. And it's just a coincidence that he kills his sister after she has sex and he kills Annie after she takes off all her clothes and he kills uh, Linda after she has sex with Bob. And that J.B. Lee Curtis survives because she never has sex with anybody. Uh, If we're going to draw back to kind of a meta space for just a moment, I would say that teenagers having sex is probably as like as much life as you can put on the screen as possible. Because I mean, when, when else are you so alive as when you're like 17? And when else are you so alive as when you're getting laid? And it's like you put those two things together and then you have a guy who's dressed all in uh, – not quite all in black, but he's, he's wreathed in shadow. So let's call it black. And he's got a white mask, a black and white uh, figure that has no color to him, just black and white. And he comes out of the darkness and snuffs that life out. 
So it's it's the 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 negation of of positive energy with negative. To be fair, the life is snuffed out after about two and a half minutes. So uh, you know, was negative. that an orgasm reference? Yes, yes. Uh, oh, okay. Sorry, yeah. I, I, I apologize. Uh, that joke was so was a really <laughs> lip- <laughs> yes. yeah. don't last long in the sack. That's what I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. The and, little death. Uh, the little death. Because in Bob can't maintain his erection. That's what I'm. Mm. That's what by the way, I, I was going to bring this up when we got there, but like the phone rings and puts Bob off of his game. Like he can't make love <laughs> to this nubile teenage girl because the phone <laughs> is ringing. I'm like, dude, that that seems to be a running theme because if you watch the absolutely incredible opening tracking shot that brings us into this movie, yes. it's about maybe a total of 60 seconds between the guy being like, let's go upstairs to him bouncing down the stairs and be like, yeah, baby, I'll call you. <laughs> Are you going to call me? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, let me just say this. We have, uh, I, not, not only is the focus puller like Superman, it's amazing because we go from wide shots to shots of subjects through a window to a close shot of the kid uh, pulling the knife out. I mean, all in, in one, one shot. Take. but it's a, yeah. Yeah. And and also we have uh, it. We're lit for exterior night, for interior uh, unlit, for interior practical lights. You know the lamps and whatnot, and her room. And we go in and out of that stuff. And it's I mean, just in terms of production, it's a fucking masterpiece. I noticed there was some weird uh, stuff with focus at various points throughout the film, yeah. though. Like where I don't know if it's a spherical lens. Uh, forgive me, I'm not really a, a you know a lens guy. But there's a lot of stuff where the backgrounds are very fuzzy, and it just it's almost warped. It's it was distorted in some ways, and it, it struck me as as a bit odd. Um, can, can, can you think of a, an example? I'll, I'll point them out when we get there. The thing to me about this sequence, and I think I bring it up because I think it pertains to much of the film, is that I suspect a lot of the long, languorous takes uh, that lead to the tension that may, that set this film apart so much, and that really become part of John Carpenter's style by and large throughout his career. It's like Jaws. It's a it's a necessity because of the budget or because of you know the realities of production that. He's got to fill 90 minutes, and they hit 90 minutes almost on the spot. And so there's a lot of long takes of people standing there. And there's, you know, and so it's like, look, like we didn't have the budget for 25 setups in the opening scene. So we did it as a one This and, script could have uh, been 70 pages easily. I mean, when you exactly. look at actual plot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. So that's, but I think that you look at this opening scene and this opening shot and go – Look, it's fantastic. I agree. There's some focus pull problems. There's, I don't know, there's, there's a couple different things. Uh, although I just want to point out the moment when the, the camera pans up to the second floor window, the light goes out right as the music cue comes on. That's fucking aces. Like that's if this is your first mu- your first movie and you hit that moment as well as John Carpenter hit it, like, yeah, you're still going to be making movies 40 years later. And I could have told you that. 10 minutes into your first movie. Really? That well, was a little dark, weird dark, to me. It was sorry, a little like dark, it's a... I know Dark Star, second movie. Yeah, Dark Star is college film, yeah. Um, but it's like a we get a weird sting when the light turns off. And, mm-hmm. I, I mean, on one level, it's but like, it, oh it, my God, it, she turned her light off. Like, what, why, are we, why are we getting a sting? It's not the sting that I remember. It's the fact that that begins the music cue that hangs with you for the rest of this. 
Because it's not really a sting. It's just a note. I don't know. It's, oh, I, it's kind of a... It's yeah. subtle. It's perfect. Like, it's the time. I love it. Uh, what I think is the first obvious cut in that entire sequence is when he puts the mask on. Because we do, for a moment, get a black screen. But, I mean, if they put the mask on the lens of the camera and just kept rolling in one continuous sequence... I'm not absolutely sure what the production realities of that. I'm sure I could dig it up if I wanted to, but I mean, holy, I mean, still, it's holy fuck. This is great shit, and what an amazing way to start a movie. Yeah, he, the, it seems like he picks that up almost just because it happens to be lying there. The mask, like, it yeah. doesn't look like it's part of his plan. Yeah, the knife is purposeful. The mask is a happy accent. Why does he prowl around the outside of the house if it's his own house? I think he's making sure that no one else is around. Mm, okay. I think he's a voyeur. I mean, again, if you're going to talk about the psychosexual aspects of this, again, like, even if, whether it's conscious or, or unconscious, I mean, trust the trust the tale, not the teller. But there's a part of Michael Myers that is intrigued by sex and sexuality. He knows what's going on in there. He wants to see what's going on in there, but he knows that he can't see it from inside the house. He goes outside specifically to spy on his sister and her boyfriend. Yeah, okay. and there, there's okay. no way that he's he's going to be able to get a view from the outside. I think that I, it's purposeful enough that I think that he's planning this, to be honest. I, I think that when, or, or at least the idea has occurred to him before cameras have started rolling, so to speak, because uh, he's already outside, he's already peeping in on them. And then when he goes out front, he's purposely watching that window for to see what's going to happen with the light because we knows that when the light goes out now she's having sex with her boyfriend and that's when he goes to the backyard and goes in through the back door which is already left open you'll notice gets the kid you know so he won't make any noise when he enters the building and then he gets like a kitchen knife and he waits in the living room for the boyfriend to leave so there's a deliberateness to this entire thing both in the camera work and in the character's actions my confusion was he lives here. This is his house. So he, he doesn't need to be outside. Like, you know, he can be sneaking around. He's not, I don't think, I mean, as you, you pointed out, she says Michael's around here someplace. It's not like he's not supposed to be there. Like, yeah, he, I, he has every right to be in the house. Yeah, but if he was sitting on his bed playing with Star Wars figures, then she probably wouldn't fuck her boyfriend. You know, it's the fact that he's, you know, not visible, that he's out of sight, out of mind, and she goes to work. Okay, now the house is very well appointed. This is not the home of a troubled, impoverished family with major visible problems. So I just want to say, like, there's no clue at all that I can see to the family or the environment having any role at all in creating the killer that Michael becomes. So that, to me, lends credence to either sort of just the bad seed theory or the, you know, something evil gets into this kid theory. Well, yeah, I, 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 not not to jump ahead to the Rob Zombie movies, which we won't be talking about for uh, you know again at our current <laughs> rate of production nine or ten months. But uh, that, that, you know, again, kind of circling back to what I was talking about a little bit earlier is the need to explain, the need to lump exposition onto what should be just a campfire story. It's like why why does he do this? Oh, because his family X Y Z. No, it's because he's evil. That's all you need to know. He's an evil kid. He stabs his sister. That to that to that. You're done. Well, and I think there's something too when you when you're addressing the the level of dread that this film incited in audiences, even more than Friday the Thirteenth, uh, and certainly what it inspired in something like Nightmare on Elm Street. This happens in regular everyday middle class homes. Yeah, 
This doesn't happen in a cabin. It doesn't happen in a remote ski lodge. These are normal people living normal lives. And I think you see that from the word go, you see it. Uh, and the only, the only kind of weird, vaguely derelict house is the Myers house. But the rest of this movie takes place in, in very normal places. And I think, it's, I think it's actually really important to the way that most of, the, uh, the most of us to this day still perceive it, that we can look around and see a house that looks kind of like ours. Yeah, it's not just an upper middle class neighborhood. It's small town America. It's small town yeah. USA. It's a nice house, small town USA. I, I think it's uh, John. Which did Targets come before this movie? Yes, it did. Ooh. Uh, I think that Targets was probably the first one. It's, it's like you know the horror movie is right in your lap. I want to you know, say it's in seventy two on that one. Deep, deep yeah, okay. cut, Mike. Targets is a deep cut. Well done. Yeah. I'm, no, I, I, that, that was actually kind of the point of that movie is, you know, they have like the old, yeah, the Bella Lugosi hanging around and he's trying to scare people with his cardboard castle. And there's, this, you know, this kid is just kind of shooting people up at a, at a drive through. See, that's a like, great you know, point, Mike, that you bring that up because like what you guys are both saying is that horror shifted from the spooky old castle or something like that to no, it's in your neighborhood. Uh, last house on the left. When did that come? Before or after this? Before this, too, I believe. Yeah, I think that okay. was. Uh, I'll have to check that one. But yeah, uh, but yeah, and I and uh, Black Christmas definitely yeah, before seventy two guys. Yeah, seventy two on Last House. Seventy two yeah, so on Last I, House. I believe so, that Black Christmas is seventy two as well. Yeah, I, cause I remember, you know, uh, Last House has, it's a nice Last House, if you're going to have a Last House, but it is remote, you know, so it doesn't quite count. Uh, Black Christmas is 74. a sorority house. Uh, yeah, okay, Black Christmas is a sorority house, and, you know, it's Canada, so of course, you know, it's supposed to be ultra safe, you know, uh, on top of everything else. But uh, it's, it's, you know, it seems like a nice little town, you know, when someone goes missing, like everybody in the town rouses themselves to go looking well even psycho like we all have the experience the shared experience of stopping at a motel late at night you know yeah but but that's remote and it's got this giant fucking weird ass house looming over the place i think they split the difference though i think they split the difference because like that's the first movie that has a toilet in it or something like there's there's a lot of organic uh down-to-earth you know grounded things in that movie but yeah i think you're right that that's more sort of the milestone of leaving the, the scary old house behind and starting towards where we get in the films that you, you just listed. And we, we stay, actually take a step back with Friday the 13th because, again, we have to go to a remote place where there's no one else around. I, I mean, this is the idea that it's like, you know, horror, a horror movie can come directly to your front door. Yeah, but as Vic uh, pointed out when we were watching those films, so many kids could relate to going to summer camp. So I think that's actually, you know, pretty hitting, hitting you where you live in some ways, too. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, cry. <laughs> Friday the 13th, just like Quaker Camp. Sorry, that was... Just like Quaker yeah. Camp. Yep. Just like Quaker Camp that I went to when I was a, when I was a teenager. So. so, Mike, you mentioned earlier, uh, Judith asks the guy to uh, call her tomorrow. And I love, like, when you talk about, yeah, the, the attention to detail in this film, and I love that you noticed this as well. I think that kid absolutely says that the look he gives her up the stairs that he's not really going to call her. I get, yeah, yeah. I get such a strong, this is a empty hookup sex vibe. It's a classic scenario. Are you going to call me? Uh, yeah, sure, babe. And yeah, I, I, unless they had a, a mic 
carefully planned on those steps. It's probably ADR, but I did notice that he it's gets, the look you know, he gives she, her that, that I'm talking. Yeah. About. Oh yeah, yeah, and yeah, he just kind of flips his hair. He's out the door. You know, then she goes to her room, doesn't bother to dress. She still knows that Michael is quote unquote around here somewhere, mm-hmm. but doesn't bother to put the rest of her clothes on. She's still in her panties, and it's when he hits the top of the steps. And he puts the mask on, and that's probably where we have our first cut, but now we're through the eyes of that mask, and oh my fucking god, what a shot. I mean, has there, I mean, if we're talking about precedence, have we seen that in a horror movie before, in which we put the audience through literally the eyes of the killer? Well, my note on that is that this would be like we were seeing through the eye holes of Jason's hockey mask, not just his point of view. Yeah, before Jason exists as an idea. Yeah. You know, but it's like, like it's somehow more visceral that it's actually filtered through. Like you see the mask and the eye holes, not just yeah. like, Oh, we're, we're in somebody's point of view. No, we're literally looking out of the mask. Yeah. And it's, it's also cool that, you know, it becomes very swiftly, it becomes a horror cliche that, uh, you know, the POV shot of the heavy breathing guy, I mean, they're making fun of it in, uh, uh student bodies in like 1981, <laughs> you know, uh, but in this one, it's actually it's motivated by uh, a practical prop. It's like your your breath does get raspy behind a cheap plastic mask. It's horror, and it's an additional horror element that comes from a grounded situation. And when he starts to stab her, notice now when he starts to stab her, uh, he looks up at the knife. A because I think we want the audience to see what he's doing. Uh, visually, instead of just surmising it from the chopping sound. B, I think Michael Myers wants to watch himself kill her. He doesn't want to just kill her. He wants to watch himself killing her. And also C, by pulling the camera away from her, gives the actress time to smear blood all over her chest. So, <laughs> Well, you could, you could think, view that a couple different ways. I mean, it, I would, it's very unnatural, and you could definitely say that like they're doing that to not show the audience the actual stabbing because it is such a weird thing to be doing, to be actually watching his hand doing the stabbing instead of watching her. But yeah, I guess you can justify it in some ways. They watched psycho and, and took notes because that's exactly what psycho does in the shower. Yeah. I would say too, I just, from the, from the, the POV part of it, and I'm embarrassed to say that I've only seen uh, bits and pieces of it, but I feel like Peeping Tom, the Michael Powell film, mm. film from 1960s, probably some of the inspiration for the, again, the, the filming a murder from the POV of the murderer and some of that sort of stuff. I haven't seen um, that either. Are you familiar with that film? I am, but I haven't seen it. it. It is a serial killer who films his murders and I believe actually murders people with the tripod on the camera. I'll just say that in all the other murders that we have of Michael Myers, uh, where we're not in his point of view, we don't see him turn his head away from the killing to look at what his hand is doing. It's utterly self-conscious. Like, it does seem like both a production necessity in order to smear blood on the part of her and also to be like, just so you know what's happening in this scene, like in case you're watching this and not clear that... And and most of the acting, I think, is, I'll just say, above... Uh, average in this but the the actual howls from the actress that's being stabbed in this a little unconvincing so there was a yeah. part of me that was like oh good i'm glad we're looking at this so it's utterly clear that she's actually being murdered in this scene yeah she she dies soft i guess you could say if you want to be charitable <laughs> <laughs> uh by the way we we did you guys notice we didn't talk about this but before that just seconds before that 
his point of view goes from his topless half-naked sister to the bed, lingers there, and then comes back to her. Somehow the bed is important. And to me, I guess he needed that data point and that piece of evidence to confirm, yes, she did, in fact, fuck this dude, look at the bed. And that's somehow relevant to what happens next, perhaps. So after that, he goes immediately out the front door. He just books it out of there. And the parents are pulling up to the curb. He looks dazed and glazed. Like, there's nothing malevolent at all about this kid in his appearance. He really, to me, he looks like the devil made him do it. Like, that's kind it looks of... Like, it looks like John Carpenter gave him a quaalude. <laughs> I'm that out. I hope they didn't put him in the hot tub after this. <laughs> yeah, that was the that was the nastiest joke that's ever been made on this podcast. Oh my God. Everyone, we're sorry for that joke. Let's just <laughs> sorry, we're sorry. Oh, okay. yeah. Yes, so, I am sorry. I, I, you know, the the timing of the car is really nice too. It's it's pretty perfect because I, you know, the the timing of the stuff inside the house, you, you can probably guess that they're shooting at MOS and they're probably being able to call up to the actors, you know, to give them their cues. But, you know, with a car, you know, a little more complicated, especially because the characters have to get out of the car and then approach the camera with the mask or the mask filter on it. 31 takes. They, 31 takes. Yeah. I, I, I don't doubt it at all. If you're going to shoot your production wad on something, it might as well be like this amazing bravura performance that opens the movie. It's like, I, and how can you not want to watch the rest of this movie? Yeah. You know, in development, you always talk about announcing to the audience what the movie is going to offer within the first couple of scenes. You know, if it's comedy, you want to make them laugh as soon as you can, la, la, la. In a horror movie, you want to have a scary scene as, as early as possible. And this pulls the trigger in every possible way. It's amazing. Well, I don't want to burn any bridges, but um, when you compare this scene directed by John Carpenter to the open of Friday the 13th, part one, uh, directed by Sean S. Cunningham, uh, yeah, one of these scenes is a little better than the other one. And I'll let you guys decide which. <laughs> but anyway, he doesn't have any interest in harming his parents either. Like, that's really kind of clear here. Like, he could start stabbing them, too. No, he's just sitting yeah. there frozen, no interest in hurting them. That is an interesting point. He doesn't come charging out of the house at them, you know, wielding the knife. It's, it's you know, he's spent. He's done. Uh, but well, I, I, again, if you're going to talk about it, because he knows for a fact that they've had sex at least twice. So. <laughs> I think it's indicative of Michael Myers as a character. It's part of what makes him so frightening that we see throughout the film. There are times when, again, for instance, the, the boys that are making fun of Tommy uh, one of them runs off and runs right into him. And we get a great stinger when he does that. But the reason the stinger works is because maybe Michael Myers is going to cut his fucking throat. But he yeah. doesn't. He lets him go. Oh, I actually love that um, beat because he's I agree. he softly catches him. It's almost gentle or innocent. Like, exactly. again, Michael evidences no hostility towards that kid at all. And that's yeah. so again, that's one of the things that lends itself to the psychosexual interpretation of the film is, as I was saying, when you look at the people that he kills, it's very connected to sexuality, nudity, those kinds of things. And the people that he lets go, like his parents, like the kid that was teasing Tommy, I don't know. Like I love that those things are these almost unintended clues into his psychology. It's why you can watch this film over and over and over again and still pull different things out of it. 
when presented with a void, you can fill it with whatever your thoughts that you might have. And it is, you know, that that's kind of the thing is even though he's posited as this character who's pure evil, there's no soul, there's nothing there, there's nothing behind the eyes, X, Y, Z. But he, it's not like he's a, a zombie where he's just a rabid dog where it's like he just runs around and, and hacks at people until he falls down. Yeah, he spends a lot of time sneaking and staring at things, and and we have to presume thinking. Oh you know, yeah, I, I, I think he's yeah. thinking. But yeah, you know, absolutely. so you guys are talking about um, the idea of like what motivates him to kill this person or not kill that person. I think that for a a good stretch of this film, he's following these girls and deciding who to kill, and he's really locked into Lori. But then he actually abandons her for a long time. And for all we know, like, he wouldn't even have gone back to her because he doesn't see her. This is just a theory. I'm just thinking out loud. But he doesn't see her doing anything that that rubs him the wrong way. So it's very possible, like, once he locks on to Annie and he's like, oh, you, you, Mm -hmm. you're going to be. And he takes his time with this. But, like, you are one of my targets, but Lori, like she has to go back across the street into the house and confront him for him to hurt her. Now we don't know. Maybe his plan all along was "Ah, at the end of the night, I'll come back for her. I think that's perfectly valid, but it is fair to wonder if she passes some kind of test. Yeah. Cause he, he spends a really long time, following her around, staring at her from, from different POVs, because he first notices her when she drops a key off at the Myers house. And that, that's kind of, I, I think, what puts her on his radar at first, because then he comes out, and we see him in foreground as she walks away down the street. And oh, then of course that's he's, what puts her it, on his radar. Yeah, yeah and, and then, I, I, but it is exactly that. It's like, I mean, it's not like she's walking around with a, a big sign around her neck that says, I'm a virgin, but... To a certain degree, she might as well, because they dress her in this very innocent, dowdy manner. Uh, she's very parental with Tommy. Uh, she's, you know, the other girls were like, hey, let's party. And she's like, yeah, I don't know. I like you know, that you and- used the word parental. The word for me was maternal. Like, even yeah, the way she yeah. looks at kids um, trick-or-treating on the street, like, her energy throughout the film is, my God, give this woman some kids. Props out to the wardrobe uh, department, because it's like, you know, she's got her little white stockings and her clunky penny loafers and this cable knit sweater. And, you know, it's like, I mean, she's definitely an attractive girl. They gave Sears, uh, I believe a, you uh, know, like a small JC Penny, uh, a small budget for Lori's Lori's that's wardrobe. A, that's, a, that's a nugget across your eyes, guys. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> across her ass. Great, and I, I got pink eye, and uh, <laughs> from 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 wearing your nugget mask, and in, yeah. uh, in an almost Eisensteinian manner. If we look at a character who's just staring at people and not doing anything, we presume that they're thinking, but we're told that this character, there's nothing behind his eyes. But at the same time, Loomis later says that, you know, he's been doing nothing for 15 years, but thinking about this night. So it's like, you know, within this very placid exterior, you know, still waters run deep. I really like the dialogue about that, where he says something like he's looking at the wall, but looking beyond the wall, like, you know, he's not seeing the wall. He's seeing where, where he plans to go and what he plans to do. By the way, we mentioned earlier, like, why did he wait? Uh, Somebody was talking about that. And, I think maybe he was waiting for physical maturity, you know, like he's only 21 yeah. or 23 or something like he was waiting to be like, 
all right, when I'm as big and strong as I can probably get in here, that's when I'm going to go. Is it possible that Michael Myers overheard the conversation about Ben Tramer? And that that is what moved Jamie Lee Curtis onto his radar to be murdered along with Annie and Linda. I, I know they, they start talking about it in the car, so he can't hear that. And then there's a phone call, but the phone call, the contents of the phone call, are it revolves around her saying to Annie, actually, no, I want you to call this off. I don't want to go out with Ben Tramer. And then, but right. then she says, oh, no, I already talked to him and he's interested in it. Is, is it possible? Because like you said, it's weird that he moves off of Jamie Lee Curtis and onto Annie and Linda, except in the context of this sort of psychosexual conversation where she is virginal and these two are uh, less so. Well, he does uh, witness a lot. Like I made the note somewhere that if he needed to get into a, a career in surveillance, like he would do pretty well. Because he's always <laughs> right there. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. He, he does legitimately overhear many of their conversations in this film. Um, other than the fact that he often allows her to see him tailing, uh, not in the car. He tails them extensively. They never notice. But he does like her to see that he's following her. Um, he, he makes that conscious choice several and, times. And only her. Right. On top of the fact that this is a movie that brings the horror film to your front door in a nice small town America of an environment, but also it brings the horror movie from midnight to broad daylight. I can't yeah. think of, a, I cannot think of a single other movie that is so effective at creeping you the fuck out with scenes that occur in a suburban street in broad daylight. In fact, the only other movie that kind of, sort of fits the bill, it follows. So, yeah, the TV version picks up with this very sparsely attended medical hearing of some kind years earlier because um, there's a lot less gray in Loomis's beard. And the point of it really is that Michael's been kept in a minimum security institution, which is really underscored by seeing his room in the facility and the way Loomis just opens the door and walks in and, and finds a young Michael, a, you know, tween Michael sitting by the window. Like there's no security in here. And then also in this TV version, we later see the aftermath of his escape and the room looks exactly the same. So, like, the idea of Michael having to do a lot to get out is pretty much out the window, no pun intended, as far as the security of this facility. That's really the point of all of this, is that people don't listen to Loomis's pleas about how dangerous Michael is. So, so far as they know, he's basically catatonic. He just sits in a chair and stares at the wall all day. So, on one hand, you might say, well, it's a little bit convenient that they stick this murderer into a minimum security. It's like, well... He was a little kid when he did it, and since we got him, he sits in a chair all day and stares at the wall. And he's been doing that for, oh, about a decade now. So, yeah, minimum security. I can <laughs> see it because, I mean, when they get him, he's six. So, like, if six yeah. years go by and he's just staring at a wall, yeah, you don't necessarily think just because his body is now 12, oh, yeah, we got to put him in a fucking hole. Um, Wrap him in chains, yeah. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, he, he has the line, Loomis, of course, you fooled them, haven't you, Michael, but not me. And I would say that the look on Michael's face here is, is he looks normal uh, physically, but he has a furrowed brow and kind of a dark concentration that is not aimed at Loomis. He, he never like kind of 
does a little tell where he smirks at Loomis or somehow acknowledges, you got me. You know, no, he's definitely not playing games with Loomis at all. And I, I, I definitely like that. He is a rich in her life. <laughs> yeah, he's the imagination on this kid. I mean, yeah, say what you mm-hmm. want. Like, if, if you're going to give him an intelligence, clearly he has an imagination because that's where he's spent most of his time. Yeah, if Loomis had two fucking brain cells, he would have stuck a typewriter in front of this kid and, you know, he would have had Stephen King on his hands. <laughs> slap, his own, slap his own name on the cover. By the way... A millionaire, millionaire author. <laughs> There's a reading of this film where Loomis is just so incompetent. Almost every decision that Loomis makes is the wrong decision throughout this film. So anyway, we, we flash forward in the original cut and now having seen this in the TV cut to October 30th, 1978, where uh, we cut to a rainy night and Loomis and a nurse are arriving at the sanitarium to take a 20-year-old Michael to court for some reason. And we see all of these patients that have been released wandering around like zombies in Night of the Living Dead. Very cool. Yeah, it's a great image. Because I mean, for first, you know, we're driving through an intense thunderstorm to go to an insane asylum, you know, right, right off the bat. We're deep in horror movie territory. And then uh, as they're coming around the curve, you know, you have these ghostly images of the patients just kind of wandering around. And the like they're not being, yeah, but and they're not being threatening at all. They're just kind of drifting about. And it's, uh, it's a spectral image. I think the, there are a couple of moments that betray the budget of this movie. And the nurse is one of them. She's terrible. Like her delivery on like, you know what bothers me most is their gibberish when they start babbling on and on. And like, and you can just now, is see that the, script or delivery? It could be either one, but juxtaposed against Donald Pleasance, who sells every one of his lines in these scenes perfectly. Uh, I think it has something to do with that. But even more from a script problem, when they pull up in the middle of a rainstorm and the patients are all outside in the middle of the night, she's like, do they still let them wander around like that? <laughs> See, Vic, you're touching like, on something that bothers me throughout the film is I'm going to be pointing out a number of lines that I think are flat out fucking terrible. Some are just yeah. dated. Some are, you know, like there's this or that explanation for it. But I mean, in many ways, I feel like if I read this script, I would think it was a piece of garbage. And a lot of these characters, the actors, really sell their lines. I mean, the, even the kids um, yeah. especially, especially Loomis. But I actually, I think that the dialogue in this movie for the most part is terrible. And I, I, I hate to, you know, speak ill of the dead here, but apparently the division of labor was that, um, Deborah Hill wrote a lot of the teenage dialogue and maybe she wrote everything other than Loomis's speeches about Michael, which have been directly attributed to Carpenter. And I would definitely say without a doubt that the best dialogue in this film are is Loomis talking about Michael. There's no question about that. And I don't know if I would say that John Carpenter is a great screenwriter in general, but in this film, I have issues with a ton of dialogue. As a writer, I'm going to say that I would much rather write long speeches by a, a psychiatrist talking about the nature of evil then try and write uh, three teenage girls talking about their homework. That's not to say, my comment is not to say that if John Carpenter had only written the teenage girls dialogue, it would have sparkled. Absolutely not. Like I'm sure infinitely clunkier and more old fashioned and not gotten it. 
I mean, I think that she definitely has a a contribution here. Yeah, the nurse actress is not amazing, but like this is one of many instances of bad dialogue. But this is, I mean, again, this is independent filmmaking on a $300,000 budget. The bonuses that you get are these long takes of people walking and then, you know what I mean, Michael Myers standing and watching them. And all the things that come about that raise the tension and that make this exceptional, they come with a price. And the price is that, they, you know, they didn't get Meryl Streep to play the fucking nurse in the scene with uh, uh, Donald Pleasance. Thank God they got Donald Pleasance because he's an enormous part of what makes this movie work. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. He's, he's definitely, uh, you know, in terms of the cast, He's definitely a linchpin, along with uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, like, I, I didn't want to, you know, give any back story or context, but it does bear noting that she is um, the daughter of the star okay. of oh, Janet. No, uh, <laughs> she likes, um, you know, uh, yogurt, and she's a hermaphrodite, <laughs> and she might have bowel problems. I don't know. It sounds probably likely. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, definitely. We don't want to get sued. I'm just kidding. I don't know. Everybody knows it's a rumor. It's not true. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> yes. We, we, we do not know if Jamie Lee Curtis is actually. Yes. Uh, There's no Curtis. such thing as hermaphroditic yogurt. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. The thing that I did notice is when um, uh, Michael breaks the window, he does it well, with his open palm, which I, I don't think I've ever seen anywhere else i have seen it mike and i will tell you where if you look at john carpenter's in the mouth of madness well later there is later yeah yeah but I, I before that it's like it's just kind of a cool i mean everybody's beat. breaking windows with their hands now i think it's prevalent in uh in carpenter's filmography and i do think he created it with this with this shot i think that's correct i i think it's cool that his hand his wide open hand just kind of comes down from top frame and hangs there for a second and then draws back and comes forward and smashes the window. And I did notice that the glass breaks. It's breaking glass. It's not sugar glass. This, this scene is cool because we get a pretty good look at him. And yet, like, yeah. at first, we're not sure if he's just one of the patients. Like, I think it does a really right. good job of kind of confusing the audience where we see one of these patients wearing the exact same, you know, Johnny hospital gown type thing you know, just run up on the car. And for a second, like, even no matter how many times I've seen the movie, I'm like, oh, is that Michael? And it's yeah. just very effective. Yeah, because he, he runs up on there. And uh, for first, she's startled, but she's not frightened. I, I, at first, it's like, ah, uh, when, when these crazy goofs are goofing around. And then uh, then he makes a graph for her head. And I like that it's raining the night before shit goes down in this movie. Like, it doesn't rain that night where all the murders happen. Like, they could have gone that route very easily. But no, it's raining the night before Halloween. There's this bit here where we see there's a matchbook that she has that somehow is supposed to be evidence of uh, Loomis tracking this vehicle. He knows all along that Michael is going to Haddonfield. I don't think we need some kind of breadcrumbs to lead him. Oh, it's the matchbook again. I guess it's, you know, Michael. Come on. Uh, I think that's sort of silly. I found myself wondering this time, and I think this is for the first time, if this would what appears to be an unmarried nurse who lights her cigarette with a match from the, the Red Rabbit Lounge, was that somehow indicative of some sort of sexual promiscuity? I think so. I absolutely think yeah. so. 
I mean, I think that like, yeah, it, it's clearly a divey place and she has a, yeah. yeah, she has a persona to her. Like this is, this might be Linda in 10 years, you know? Yeah. That shot of his POV noticing the matchbook is kind of uh, the sound of one shoe dropping, but uh, just taken by itself, it does feel like he's judging her a little bit. You know, he mm-hmm. looks at the matchbook and he immediately surmises, you know, what kind of a joint she likes to hang out in in her after hours. You know, so yeah, I like that their relationship is not warm at all. <laughs> like they both kind of have mutually uh, suspicious thoughts. Now, when when the patients come out, he says, "Wait" to her. She does. That ends up being terrible advice. She wanted to go on up to the hospital. He goes and gets on a phone at the security gate. I guess he's calling, you know, like seeing what's going on. Meanwhile, Michael gets his ride to Haddonfield right here. Then at the end of the sequence, uh, we get the evil is gone, is what he says about her. So that's, uh, I'm sorry about Michael. So to the nurse. So that's like one of those instances of him characterizing, again, Michael as, you know, something something more than human. And I, w- I want to say that the nurse is one of a short list of survivors where Michael tangles with her and probably could have killed her, but he doesn't. Yeah, I, I think in a lesser movie, he would have, like, grabbed a shard of glass from the window and stuck it in her eye or something like that. Mm-hmm. But in this one... His focus is not on murder, it's on escape. Not the least of his differences from Jason is the fact that he can drive a car. That's one of the things that I've often heard about this movie is, well, you know, he was caught when he was six years old, and he spent his entire life in this asylum. How does he know how to drive a car? And my answer is, who gives a single shit? It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Well, the filmmakers cared because they have a fairly awkward line to address this. Right after this sequence in the theatrical cut, Loomis is mm-hmm. leaving the uh, office with some administrator guy who's giving him a hard time because apparently Loomis didn't make it clear enough how dangerous this guy was. Poor Loomis does get shit on a lot in this movie. And like the, the dialogue goes along the lines of, well, I didn't know he could drive. And then Loomis says, well, somebody taught him. And that makes me think, I want to see the short film of Michael Myers' driving lessons. It's not the driving lessons that make me laugh. It's the idea of Michael Myers stopping for gas. Uh, I, you know, <laughs> the, 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 I mean, who knows how full of a tank this is and how far away Haddonfield is. You know, yeah, I had so the feeling, I, I thought about that, Mike, and I actually mm-hmm, thought yeah. that Loomis probably made sure they had a full tank. Probably, he, but well, yeah. He, it, says the way, he gives the mileage, and when he stops at the payphone, it says Haddonfield 75. So I feel he's about. I think he says it's about 120 miles or something. I think it's 150. Um, so either way, could have could have made it in a full tank. And I also, I don't know if this is just the perspective of someone watching it from 1986. That at that point you could have seen on television the difference between the gas pedal. You know what I mean? You'd have seen a Saturday afternoon showing a Smokey and the Bandit. Like you'd have known what a gas pedal was and what a brake pedal was. Yeah, there's enough movies and TV that show you now, sort now of the basics. If, exactly. Now, if they'd been driving a stick shift, mm-hmm. now I've got questions. I, there's absolutely no reason to teach this kid how to drive. And I, I think that I, the fact that he knows how to drive, I, 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 you know, it, it's kind of a thing to smirk at because people like to laugh at horror movies, quote unquote. But, uh, you know, I, I just don't care. And it's for the exact same, you know, how does Michael Myers know how to drive? For the exact same reason that the dude can eat six bullets and fall off a thing and then run away. Yeah, you know, it's like because he's more than human. He's we're telling a folktale. 
you know. Yeah, but I, I mean, the film <laughs> goes out of its way to address this, like you know. Yeah. Yeah, know, but anybody who's tried to teach about, someone I, how to drive probably knows. Movie. This isn't something that that uh, uh, breaks the the realm of reality for me. Yeah, of all of the major franchise horror movie characters, he is the only one who drives around in a car. I, and I, I actually it, like I, the idea that like it makes him more of a a, a Mister. You know, what, what's the word for like Stranger Danger? You know, like, yeah, it just adds an yeah. element of reality of creepiness to. Again, we're we're kind of circling back around to the idea of a marriage of urban legend boogeyman character plus psychosexual creep stranger danger guy. The movie really effectively welds the best of those two archetypes. Totally agree with that. Totally agree with that. And and that car yeah does such a, and again we're talking about you know the fraught nature of these broad daylight scenes you know the fact that every time that car shows up and slowly cruises past the characters you know it's like bruce the shark the the killer is never far away and we know that even if he's not jumping yeah you know, like jason Voorhees would have jumped out of that car and started hacking away at people but he is methodical he's thinking he's he's planning and That's there's something actually- fucking creepy about that Mike, that's Jaws is exactly the note that I made about those early scenes, those early daylight scenes. The the car becomes the barrels, indicating that something scary is right there, and it's terrifying. I mean, so it's enormously effective. The irony, of course, is uh, Carpenter would go on to do Christine, and I rewatched that several months ago, and uh, I, I actually liked it a lot more than I did when I first saw it years and years ago. Uh, but the one thing that it doesn't do is what it does with the car in Halloween. I, I think because Christine is a far more garish vehicle, I, it's very hard to not notice that car when it's on the street, whereas Michael sticks to extremely plain-looking cars it's that you just don't... It's anonymous station wagon that in multiple points in the film, people assume that that car belongs to someone that they know. I, I love that it's not just like a sedan. It's a station wagon. You know, he could have groceries in the back. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I used to call that type yeah. of car a, a grocery getter. I mean, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. We, we have talked about like the teachers in class and is it relevant? Like if you're going to have a, a, a teacher in class droning on about something, is this the filmmaker's way of shoehorning in some kind of theme or idea? So I think it's worth pointing out that we get a scene of Lori in class with Michael uh, stalking her outside the window, uh, where the teacher is talking about fate and the concept that fate never changes. Did you guys notice that or, and, or have any thoughts on it? Oh, absolutely. I noticed it because I, I wonder if there are examples before this film, of what would become an extremely common trope in horror movies. And for, for, you know, for all the spoofs I've seen of horror movies, I don't think I've ever seen one that directly addresses this specific trope. But it's very, very common, including in It Follows that we mentioned. If the filmmakers want to uh, attach a thematic element to the storytelling, either that and or introduce a piece of exposition that will pay off in the creature's mythology later, it's going to be in, in a lecture. You know, typically high school, sometimes college, like in Candyman. But, uh, it uh, Follows is a community college. That's right. That's right. Well, yeah, we, we, we had that debate. Nightmare yeah. on Elm Street is a high school where we get uh, essentially the same scene as well. Yeah, but it would be really funny looks- to see the parody version, Mike, that you're, yeah. uh, that you're like referring to. By the way, this great writer yeah. said 
don't have premarital sex and stay away from dark alleys. <laughs> but I, I, the thing about Nightmare on Elm Street that I love is it subverts it because uh, it's actually a source of the haunting. Uh, you know, because it drones off as she as Nancy drifts off to sleep, and then she looks up and her friend is in a body bag standing in the yeah, doorway being in of the a classroom. boring class is directly lethal in in the yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street world. Probably one of the scariest moments, at least for me. Of the entire series. I mean, that scared the living fucking pickles out of me. I think it, we, we did that show, by the way, if anyone's listening, uh, go back in our archives. We did a, a show on, on Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. And I would say that that one scene is scarier than anything in this film. There, there is a dreamlike element to it. I, I again, you know, you're touching on the idea of, you know, the languorous long shots. It does instill a, a nightmarish dread. And then later on when night, nighttime actually falls, it is, you know, this very urban legendy. You know, it's a nightmare about a boogeyman. Yeah, uh, I, don't, I don't want Wes Craven to hate me. Oh yeah, he's he's no longer with us. But uh, yeah, this movie is better directed than that film, and overall, I think this is a better film than Nightmare. Too soon, John. Too, Too soon. soon. You're right. You're right. Yeah. That was that right. was a low blow. That was a low. You know, I, all I, my I, shots are at people who are deceased. What a piece of yeah, shit geez. I am. <laughs> but no, I mean, you, I think that overall, weirdo. No wonder you like all these crazy horror movies. <laughs> I would, by and large, agree with you that Halloween is a better directed film. And if there is a moment that comes close to the horror that is elicited from that moment when Tina appears in the, the body bag, which I agree is if you're talking about the 10 scariest things I've ever seen on screen, that's in the top 10. Mm-hmm. But the moment at the end of Halloween when Laurie is sitting there and you see Michael Myers sit up. I've heard descriptions from from critics as disparate as Gene Siskel and Anthony Lane in New Yorker say they remember seeing that in New York theaters where the audiences you could just feel the breath sucked out of everyone when Michael oh. sits up right there. It's oh, quite- dude, you you can YouTube that. There's a YouTube. And that I've watched, and which so someone grabbed the audio of the audience reacting to Michael Myers sitting up, and yeah, they lose their fucking mind. You're kidding? They go, yeah, I go go on YouTube, just hunt around for it, man. But it's like, yeah, I, I, I that audience goes fucking bananas. It's 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 wonderful because it really is, you know, activating the communal aspect of of horror movies. That is one of the reasons why I love this this genre so much. You know, you can say that it's violent or it's you know immoral. Da, 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 da. But, you know, I, what other genre brings an audience together and also a community together so so thoroughly? In yeah, a way, so. you're surviving the, the experience of the film together. Like, all of exactly. you are the final girl. It's an element of, of combat bonding. You, you, when you walk out of that theater, you all survive the same shipwreck. Yeah, maybe you know? we won't do a podcast about um, Get Out, but I, I did see that film with an audience. And you kind of had that, that vibe. With the audience, hmm. maybe maybe that's why well, it's a best picture nominee. I will say, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if you guys are ready if you get room for another nugget, but uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> room for the nugget. I I heard an interview with Roger Ebert where he talked about watching this movie for the first time, like one of the critics' preview screens in New York with Gene Siskel, and he said that Siskel lived four blocks from the movie theater, and he took a cab after the movie was over because he was too fucking scared to walk the four blocks That's to his apartment. Ebert held a very deep loathing for the Friday the 13th movies. I, I don't think that 
he hated any other movies more than Friday the 13th films. And By the way, it's worth noting he, he liked this movie. Yeah, so I, 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 you know, I wonder what the X Factor is. I, I better filmmaking, obviously, but yeah, um, he was one of the champions of this film. So, sure. like for yeah. him to go from being one of those people who said Halloween is a good movie to just you know going out all guns blazing against Friday the Thirteenth, I would like to. I haven't, you know, I used to read him like the Dead Sea Scrolls, but like I would mm-hmm. like to parse those reviews and and see what the difference was for him. Yeah, they're they're very easy to find because yeah, you're absolutely right. He he would champion uh, horror movies that that struck him as interesting. Uh, Evil Dead Two, he really liked. Uh, Dawn Blair of the Witch, Dead. Pro- yeah, Blair Witch yeah. Project. He I, I believe he gave three and a half or four stars to uh, Halloween, obviously. But uh, I mean, if you want to, you know, if you ever Google up, uh, you know, Roger Ebert zero star review, I think the first one was like Friday the Thirteenth Part Two. Yeah, and I, I think I, I think it's because he felt that those movies were just about, you know, people cheering for the death of teenagers. Yeah, by the way, like, talking about crowd experiences, like, he referenced in his review more crowd stuff than I've seen in any other review of his that I can think of. Like, it was mm-hmm. it was a much of his emotional response to Friday the 13th Part Two was his horror at the audience's reaction to it. Yeah, poor Ebert. Anyway, we love Ebert. So... Uh, I don't want to dwell too much on Tommy because he's not that of a, important. Of- oh, it's interesting that both franchises have an important Tommy little yeah. boy character. Uh, I wonder if that was the tip of the hat or if it was coincidence. I don't know. But uh, I, I would like to backtrack to um, something that uh, a little bit earlier when we cut from the asylum and Michael escaping and we go back to Haddonfield and we open on this very, very wide shot of uh, Peaceful Park daylight you know we, we we switch from the horror movie to day-to-day life and uh the first thing that we see is a strode household which is very nice and there is a giant uh brown 70s sedan parked out front with strode realty on the side her father is a real estate agent and not only is a real estate agent but he is handling the sale of the myers house which apparently has lain dormant for 15 years because no one has sold it or been interested in selling it it's only now that there's a real estate agent involved in it. And then when they go there, uh, you know, Tommy is terrified of it. And again, we're kind of touching again on the idea of the power of bringing in like urban legend, you know, narrative muscularity to a film because it's like every town has the spook house, you know, the scary house. It's the one that's run down. Something weird happened there a long time ago. The other kids talk about it in whispers, and you know they, they make up little rhymes about it, and little stories about it, and they tell ghost stories about it. It's and the house that is like you dare other kids to go into. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you see examples of of that house popping up in other movies. Uh, it is a very good recent example. You know, that's the scary house. You know, and you know when when I was a kid, we we had a spook house on our block that it was a little weird. No one really knew anything about the people who lived there. It was kind of run down, you know. It was, it was your house, wasn't it, Mike? <laughs> it was. You're it like, was. oh god, who lives there? What a loser! <laughs> yeah. I, I live in a spook house, but uh, uh, but yeah, he, he literally calls it a spook house, and, and uh, it, it does make me laugh though, because the uh, the other prominent example I can think of of like a, a neighborhood spook house that everyone's scared of is the one in uh, It's a Wonderful Life, where it's this rundown place 
but they fill that house with uh, love and family and life. So it's like you, you, can, you can solve for a spook house with positive energy. You know, if you so desire. Apparently they haven't had since 1963 because it's been on the market since then. <laughs> My thought with this was, wow, Strode Realty has really picked a winner here. Like, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, presumably the parents, you know, move away because they're so horrified by the events. And the house obviously just sits fallow because it's completely run down by this point. Well, the they, they made clear like, that they leave immediately. Like, they didn't yeah. like, make it another 10 years. No, they left right after that, and yeah. nobody has moved in there since then. Yeah, who the fuck wants to live in that house after your daughter gets killed? You know, so it's like, uh, but it, it's interesting that uh, uh, Michael Myers has been thinking about Halloween for 15 years. Finally, he gets out of the asylum, and like like an arrow, he goes straight here, straight back to the scene of the crime. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> it's interesting that only Loomis thinks to look here well, it's <laughs> for funny. this guy. It's funny because <laughs> Loomis makes the decision that he is absolutely going to park himself at this house because he's convinced that Michael will come back there. So Loomis misses much of the events of the film because he's yeah. hanging out at the house where, admittedly, clearly Michael I, was there for a period yeah. of time. Loomis isn't wrong. He's just late. Yeah, it's funny because like he and uh, the sheriff Lee Brackett, which I confirmed is a uh, homage to the screenwriter of The Empire Strikes Back and The Big Sleep and some other things. Like Lee Brackett mm. is a is one of the names that Carpenter, um, you know, homaged here. But um, they find what we never see, but is apparently a dog that has been partially eaten. And Loomis immediately says, oh, well, he, he must have gotten hungry. And yes. the sheriff hilariously, in my opinion, says, maybe it was a skunk. <laughs> oh, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've seen skunks bring down dogs, like, on the rag, man. Carnivorous skunk, yeah. yeah. I absolutely... It was uh, an army of angry skunks bearing <laughs> Yeah. But I, I absolutely love that detail, the idea that if, you know, Michael still has to service the functions of his body, he still has mm -hmm. to eat, he's not so much of a supernatural creature that he can't go without eating, but if he's going to feed himself, it's to grab a live animal and murder it with his teeth. If we're going to watch, like, an outtake, I'd love to see that scene. No like, like, you, I don't, I don't think Kita would want to show you that scene. I don't think that you can show a scene of that nature to an audience and have them have any doubt whatsoever in their mind of the villainy of the character. <laughs> well, that kind of reminds me of uh, Jason on two levels. One is in part two, we see his filthy commode. So we're, mm -hmm. we're reminded of that biological necessity. But also Jason, like, uh, like Michael, as we're going to find later in the film, has no compunction at all about killing dogs. He only kills a dog. He doesn't eat it because we also, besides the commode, we also see his collection of bean cans. Oh, well, yeah. You know, Jason might be less uh, of a cannibal or a dog eater at, at any rate than, than Michael. Because uh, mm -hmm. you're right. I think that uh, Jason eats human food, whereas Michael will eat whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. Do those things take you, take you guys out of a movie? This Absolutely movie. not. I, 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 I fill in the blanks. I, that the, the idea of watching Michael Myers eat a dog alive with his bare teeth 
fills me with such amazing dread. I, well, it tells me so much about that character. Vic, you know? I will say that I wondered if Michael used his turn signals when he was driving. I will. I mm. don't know if that took me out of the movie, but um, <laughs> it does raise some questions that maybe we shouldn't be um, raising. How about you? I mean, did you feel these? Like, all right, here. Let me let me frame it this way. Like, in some ways, this movie is more interesting if you're like a mature adult to be like, how do I justify all of this with like? he's just a guy like, you know, all of this is consistent with within the spectrum of human potential that he's just that crazy. And he's this kind of crazy. And in some ways that's scarier than anything. Or do you prefer to view it as like, you know, there's some supernatural inflection of some kind and he's, you know, transcended um, human limitations. Vic, what's your thought about that? I think one of the wonderful things about this movie is that it works on both levels because I know people who can watch uh, the ring and the grudge and the exorcist and not bat an eyelash, but who watch the strangers and have to sleep with a hammer under their pillow for the next six weeks because they're afraid of someone trying to break into their house. I happen to be the inverse where I am much more terrified by supernatural things, even though not a superstitious uh, person, uh, I'm much more terrified by the, that, that supernatural aspect than I am by the, the sort of physical grounded world. I, as a screenwriter, the, the worst note that I can get, the thing I hate the most is, can you, you know, can you make it more grounded? And it's like, no, like it's fucking scarier to me. If you, if you free it from those shackles and say that anything can happen and what's marvelous about the way that, that Carpenter has constructed Michael Myers is that if you're afraid of the physical incarnation of someone who does the things that Michael Myers does, then he still does things like eat a dog, which is, which is fucked up all by itself. But if you're looking for or if you're more frightened by the, the sort of supernatural ideas or the idea that these things exist in these this larger, weirder context, you have all of the speeches by Loomis about how he's the embodiment of pure evil and then the climactic moment of his body disappearing at the end. Whichever side of that dichotomy you fall on, there is plenty of evidence to scare the shit out of you in this movie. It's yeah, well, a perfect amalgamation of that. You know, I, I've mentioned on an earlier podcast, I, I'm, I'm far more frightened of, of supernatural things because, you know, I, you know, with a killer on some level, it's like, you know, maybe you could run away, maybe you could fight them, maybe you could blow them up, maybe you could run them up with a car. Whereas, you know, with a ghost, it's like, you know, you could be in a submarine and they're going to get you anyways. It doesn't matter unless you, you enact some spell. When she comes up to the Myers house and she drops off the key uh, for her father, we're dropped into POV and we learn a few seconds later that's going to be Michael's POV. It's, it's, it's a corrupted POV. It's through this really this window that's filthy with age and has broken shards of glass. And uh, he just appears as a shadow in the foreground. So it's like when, whenever he's looking at her, it's still corrupted in some way. He had weirdly pointing hairs on his head in that shot. And it almost reads as like a creepy old man in this over-the-shoulder shot of uh, Lori and Tommy outside the house through this the window in the door. And when you don't really know what's happening, it's just like this strange head that we're, cause we're not in his point of view. We're actually over his shoulder. 
And yeah, yeah. It's it's disturbing, and ultimately we know that that's like the sort of fake hair on the mask, but mm-hmm. it sends some mixed signals that I think is interesting. Yeah, and it's funny because Tommy is on the sidewalk, and he's in the shot, and after he's just gotten done warning Lori, don't go near there, it's a spook house, it's haunted, bad things have happened there, and she's like, oh, you big silly, and she drops off the key, and then we cut to, what do you know, there's a serial killer staring at them from inside the house. So moving on to uh, Tommy being stalked by Michael, who, who does, after this experience, decide to, oh, let's, let's follow this kid for a while. And that's when, of course, you know, he, the bully runs into him. But right, then, now, let, me, let, let me ask you this, this. Why do you think he follows Tommy instead of Lori? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, clearly he, he doubles back for Lori. It's not like he doesn't. But I think that Tommy, Tommy interests him for some reason. And I don't know if it's because of the fact that, like, it's not that Tommy's disrespectful. Of, of like, you know, like keeping his distance or I don't think it's negative. Maybe his interest is, is more, is closer to pure curiosity than victim targeting. Maybe he uh, identifies with Tommy because the last mm-hmm. time he was in this house, he was Tommy's age. Well, and, and he also sees it? the bullies uh, hassling Tommy. The minute they turn around and walk away, Michael comes out of that house. He doesn't charge out of the house and slaughter them in broad daylight you know, within seconds of their turning away, he comes out on the sidewalk and just stares at Lori for a really long time. So he's thinking about her, but ultimately ends up following the the little boy. Well, you could say I that think... Tommy is, is uh, not Tommy, um, Michael, is, is a really sophisticated and complex villain in that, yeah, he, he picks his shots. He's not simply a killing machine. I think it's possible that it's, that it's just a little more practical than that. I would venture that he, so we have him watching Lori in class, right? But Lori's not doing anything interesting in class. This isn't It Follows where he's going to somehow approach her in school. And I, in my experience, if I remember correctly, elementary school kids get out of school first. Mm, yeah, that's true. So if, he that's has true. A, if, he, if he has a, a, an interest in both of them, he goes and sees Lori in school and sort of establishes that she's in school, but she's simply going to go from class to class. And how many times can you stand creepily outside a window before it starts to lose its effect? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does he does he go and follow her and then sort of go, well, OK, that's where she is and switch gears and go, well, where's Tommy? Well, literally, um, you could write an article or something where you just track his movements throughout this film. And a lot yeah. of it is just like moving from person to person and observing for a while. And then, you know, an opportunity presents itself and he acts on it, but he's, he's so patient. And there's a Loomis line somewhere along the line where they talk about his incredible patience. And he has to be for having been in an asylum for all these years, staring at a wall, like patience is probably the defining characteristic of this killer. Even though he's a homicidal maniac, he's the exact opposite of a slavering, you know, rabid dog. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking at the shot right now. It's it's in this case, it's uh, from Laura's POV, and it's uh, through the blinds. But you can see the station wagon that he's stolen, and Michael has his mask on. He's standing there in broad fucking daylight on the other side 
of the car. And uh, given the fact that we've established that the people of Haddonfield walk around on sidewalks, it, it would have been hilarious if like someone like walked past him on the sidewalk while he's well, doing this. One of my problems <laughs> with Lori is that she sees this guy like nine times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she goes into the night like babysitting without any real sense of jeopardy. Whereas I would think that she would have called the police, you know, like if this guy, I mean, the big instance is when she's in her own bedroom and the guy is standing out in her fucking yard with the laundry yeah. whipping. It's like, yeah. you know, dude, that's not something you're just like, Oh, and I mean, she even has a line, which I, I think is pretty painful. Oh, kiddo, you still believe in superstition. Uh, it's, yeah. just, it's, it's brutal, to be honest. John, what I would argue is that what makes it work is that it is Halloween. Who? Right. who ah, yes, you're right. Yeah. This guy in a mask outside my house. He's a little early, place. but it's not that crazy. The yeah. kids yeah. are already out. Right, you're right. You're right. I mean, right. that's a, right. that's, that's a point. Before she goes into the house, there are already kids trick-or-treating, so... It's Halloween. Everybody's entitled to one good scare, right? Like, yeah, and and also uh, keep in mind that he's not quite as young as Jason in two, but he is like twenty-one. And even though he's you know a young man, I just want to say I love the slow tracking shot of Michael and Tommy walking across the school lawn, where Michael is in the car, but he's moving at the same pace as Tommy on foot. It's just so pervy and horrible because you don't really yeah. know what his expectations are or his desires. And we just have this POV through the security cage in the back of the stolen car as Tommy yeah. you know, crosses to the sidewalk. It's just, yeah, it's I, just I, I, disturbing on a fundamental level. I, again, that marriage of boogeyman and stranger danger. Mm-hmm. You know, they're both archetypes, but one is, Vicky mentioned grounded. One is way more grounded and you know a lot more realistic, unfortunately. Yeah, and, even though you we, know, we know that that's not Michael's game, it's still fucking horrible. It, it's kind of like, well, what if you took stranger danger in and made him like actually an embodiment of evil, like a supernatural, you know, there's a yeah. touch of the supernatural to him. You're right. It touches your imagination of like, yeah, just this horrible combination of human sickness and evil. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like if, if uh, you crossed Jared from subway with Jeffrey Dahmer, <laughs> you know, like I would like to see a, that's brilliant, but B like, remember the, the huntsman with Kevin Bacon, a, um, Friday the 13th yeah, alum. They do. Like well if you could combine the huntsman with like the woodsman, the, super, the woodsman, thank you. The woods. Yeah. Um, the Woodsman with uh, supernatural horror. Like, yeah. that would be so, so wrong. So horrible. But anyway, <laughs> Michael bores of Tommy. He gets sick of Tommy. He moves on. And uh, then he picks up the girls. We're following the three girls with a steady cam. And they're talking about how Annie's boyfriend, El Jerko, is grounded. <laughs> <laughs> Linda's monologue, Paul, who we never meet. We never get Paul in this movie. Paul Mm -hmm. dodged a bullet. But anyway, Linda monologues um, about forgetting her books and who cares if you have your books. And it's pretty ridiculous. And I'd like to believe it's mostly improv. But um, we get something that's a theme in this film that I think is kind of interesting and worthy of note. Michael is misidentified as Devin Graham. He's some guy that lives around here who I guess he has a grocery getter. And several times 
Michael is misidentified as somebody that um, is just looking for a date, or maybe Laurie should ask him out, or she's gonna he's gonna ask her out, and it's it's this weird combination of this Midwestern, or maybe not Midwestern, but just small town thing of everybody is known by both names. And mm-hmm. you just kind of immediately ascribe an identity to anyone you see. Oh, well, that must be because of this various, you know, this car is, is something like their car. That must be Devin Graham, you know? Right, and right, right, right. Yeah. The film really hits this on, on, on a couple of occasions. I don't know if this is relevant, but I just very quickly Googled Devin Graham. And mm-hmm. Devin Graham is an American videographer who produces adventure and extreme sports videos on YouTube under the name Devin Super Tramp. And <laughs> literally none of that surprises me. Wow. Like that okay. sounds like the same douchebag that they're talking about in the car. Oh, don't beat up on poor Devin. He's having fun with his adventure videos. <laughs> Devin, uh, Devin Super Tramp, yeah. Sorry. Don't yeah, let me yeah. take away from Devin Super Tramp. Yeah. We, 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 we know that that man owns some sparkly Speedos. Uh, <laughs> One of my low-key favorite lines in this movie is, Hey, jerk! Speed kills! <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Carpenter goes out of his way to include a shot of the seal of the state of Illinois mm-hmm. on the side of this station wagon. I, I guess to suggest to you know the audience why no one's like, hey, why is this creep slowly driving around this car and being a creep? It's like, oh, well, it's an official vehicle. No one's going to look at it twice. Or if they do, they're thinking that's, oh, he's one of the good guys. Between Haddonfield and... Child's Play and Candyman, we have three of the major horror franchises are all Chicago slash Illinois centered outside of the East Coast. You know, because uh, Jason is uh, where is Crystal Lake, New Jersey? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah it's, so. it's about two hours from uh, Elm Street, if I recall correctly. That, yeah, was, so. that, was, a, that was a, a Freddy versus Jason joke because remember they get in the van and they just drive to. Crystal. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, even well, when you, you know. see palm trees like throughout uh, yeah. Nightmare. Yeah. Mm-hmm. By the well, way, you I, see I, a couple I, palm trees in this movie too, guys. Uh, it's a, but it's a, it is a it is a midwestern horror film, uh, which is which is I think a little bit, with the exception of maybe the town that dreaded sundown. Uh, you know, I don't, know Texas. Which, I don't know where Texarkana falls in the... Uh, uh, well, that's the, based on a real case. I wonder if anybody besides Rom Zombie were making a uh, Halloween film today, or making this Halloween film today, wouldn't they have Michael Myers kill the bullies? Like, wouldn't it be crazy albino fucking kid from uh, Harry Potter, and then you get Michael Myers running him through with uh, some kind of knife or something early on in the movie? It's almost something interesting to me that they don't make Michael Myers an agent of providence or or redemption. Yeah, he's not an adventurer. In any way. Exactly. They don't, they don't give you a bad guy early on that Michael Myers kills, which seems to be a, a hallmark of these later movies where it was like, we want you to root for the bad guy, but like, but so we've got to give you like a terrible person for him to kill because they're going to deserve it and you, it's okay to root for that. I, uh, I noticed that, especially in the 90s horror movies. Every once in a while, you'll see, like, I think, isn't it Friday the 13th Part 8, where uh, Jason ends up killing a couple of ra- wannabe rapists? Yes. And uh, or- ordinarily, that, yeah. Yes. I mean, ordinarily, that's a beat that you give to uh, an early aughts superhero movie. But in that earlier case, he gave it to a serial killer. So it's like, oh, 
for in, in kind of a weird way, he's a good guy, quote unquote, for once. But no, he's just a rabid dog. You just happen to get them first. Um, but yeah, it is, you know, not for a second are we going to posit Michael Myers as a, a quote unquote good guy, even if he quote unquote takes it too far. Um, well, we're you used know, to in some way in 2018 uh, seeing killers like Dexter Morgan or something where, oh, they have a code and it might be harsh, but. You know, they're predictable in some way because certain things are good and certain things are bad. And I mean, well, these movies it, did yeah. establish that, I guess. Early early on in 80s slasher, fel- slasher films, it was sort of customary for the first couple of victims to be people that deserved it for this or that reason. I also want to take a second and just apologize. Tom Felton played Draco, Draco Malfoy. Neither of them was an albino. I just couldn't remember his name. I, mean, I, I apologize. Jesus, Vic. It's, it's very, it's very offensive to the albino American. Uh, you know, Vic, just, we've said some that, bad that, things that, on this podcast. Me, me, most well, of well, them. But that—that's really the worst. Well, but mm-hmm. wait, wait, wait. But the reason it comes up is because that is exactly who Tom Felton played. I mean, not a, not an albino. He played this a, a version of this character in the uh, the Jeez. first Planet of the Apes movie. Vic, it's, it was like it's melatonin challenged. Come on. Yeah. Not Alpine. <laughs> well, but, I, I, I but the point yeah. is, he plays the character who de- who they make into an asshole who deserves to get killed, mm-hmm. so that as an audience you get on the side of uh, Caesar and the Apes in the again the initial. Well, that's uh, a very different uh, game. I mean, the, this movie uh, people have claimed uh, apparently, according to Wikipedia, that the filmmakers are trying to invest us in um, Michael Myers' point of view. But no. I don't. I don't believe that at all. Yeah, I I, I, I I rolled my eyes at that horseshit because if you really want to look at a movie that that tries to pull that kind of bait and switch in a certain way, is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer because the first guy that he kill he and Otis kill is that awful pawn shop guy yes. or the you know the, the black market guy. So it's yeah. like you mm-hmm. know, and not only do they kill him, but they even like smash a TV over his head, and it, it almost reads like you know something that like Schwarzenegger would do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's like yeah, fuck that guy. You know, he's a big fat evil guy and you know fuck that dude like, like you know he, he gets killed in the same way that like toxic avenger would kill a guy and he's such a like, like broad you know he's a broad unctuous character and you're like yeah go get him henry go get him Otis. and then you you put the audience in that mindset and then you take them to that horrible the home invasion scene is probably one of the worst things i've ever seen in a fucking film by the ever. way uh, that's a found footage scene found footage scene well before the blair witch project god Insanity that that that, that movie. Yeah, it's like I, I you want to talk about a movie that I had to take a shower after mm-hmm. watching. I and it, it, it's absolutely incredible. But holy fuck, that is a sledgehammer to the soul. Yeah, if you want to like uh, um, have a list of the most disturbing films of all time, that mm-hmm. one that one's very high on my list. Yeah, yeah. Like even Martyrs made me wince, but Henry is the one that that really is like you know it's the closest horror analogy that I have to Schindler's List, where it's like I've seen it the once. And I never feel I don't feel the urge to ever see it again. It's much more it's much more disturbing than Martyrs in a way because Martyrs has a different game plan for what it's expressing, whereas this film Henry ends up in just like the most horrible and bleak and empty place you can ever leave a movie when he drops that bag off on the side of the road. 
Oh, in, in, oh, incredible. And, uh, but we're talking about two movies about serial killers. And uh, even though Henry is kind of sort of, if you squint really hard based on a, a true situation, we're, we're still talking about two movies about serial killers. And, mm-hmm. you know, Halloween, I watch minimum once a year. I've watched this movie literally dozens of times, and I love it more every time I watch it. Whereas Henry, I've watched it exactly once decades ago, and I never feel, you know, I, I, I can't see a scenario in which I'd watch it again. But you're acknowledging that that's not an insult. You know, that's actually a couple. Oh, no, 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 no. And circling back around to the idea of the melding of uh, the supernatural killer with a stranger danger archetype uh, is Freddy Krueger. Because, you know, right off the top, we establish him that he is a child molester. He's, a, you know, not, not just a killer of children, but a molester. As that series goes on, we start to root for him that we, because he, he says funny stuff starting in part three. If there's one thing that the remake did was to bring that, that awful queasy element of that character. Yeah, because by five and six, we're cheering for the guy. The next thing that I wanted to touch on here is when Michael appears behind some hedges and steps out and Annie is looking down and doesn't see him, but uh, Lori does. And... She says, there's a guy there, there's a guy there, and and Annie goes to check it out, and just fucking with Laurie at this point is like, oh, he wants to take you out tonight, and (laughs) there's no one there, and Laurie comes up, and and Annie says, you scared another one away, (laughs) and it just really kind of underscores this, the bookish girl with no boyfriend stuff but both Lori and tommy get teased by other characters you'll right. notice and right. i perhaps that's why they bond so thoroughly as both of them are kind of at their the bottom of their given social hierarchies right and annie's response to this is uh i'm sorry Lori's response to this is guys think i'm too smart which is uh, that's a little painful Maybe. yeah but take a take a look at this is when um nancy uh, shouts at Michael Myers and and he stops. It's You're calling a, her Nancy. I, her character's name is Annie. Annie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Annie. Yeah, it's like Nancy Lewis. Up until now, he's been very methodical, very placid, very stocky. And for one second, he stomps on the fucking brakes in the middle of the street. And yeah, this, this is actually the, I would say, the first crack in his psyche. He's reactive to another character in an emotional way. And I wonder if this absolutely spells Annie's doom yes. right here. Yes, I, I, I agree with that completely, that he locks on to Annie from this point forward. Yeah, and she's like, "God, take a can anybody take a joke?" Or she says something. Yeah, that's the wonderful thing is these characters inhabit such a sunlit, safe small town that they feel completely safe in any situation. It's like if a if a weird guy is staring at them, oh, he's a creep. They have no compunction about shouting mean things at him and being flippant. Yet they're not judgmental in some weird way. Both girls, Annie and Linda, repeatedly Mm -hmm. sort of suggest that. Maybe if he's hot, like yeah. whoever this is, yeah. <laughs> fucking Lori should go out with him. <laughs> yeah, no, but exactly. I, I think I mean there's something to me. There's something. This is a. I agree with you guys. This is a, a magnificent moment. But part of what makes it work is that the people in this world who are creepy people, kind of staring at girls and cars as they grow by, tend to be antisocial and weird and like what they don't want is confrontation. And so that's why 
the women in this situation are actually empowered to say things like, hey, jerk, speed kills. Because the, the most of the weirdos in this world take off and run when a girl actually confronts them with their weirdness. And so to see somebody, instead of take off and run, stop. And again, especially because of what we know about the person that's in that car, to see the ways in which that moment can go wrong and horribly wrong, I agree that I think he latches onto her in this moment. But it is, it's like the worst case scenario of something that I think happens very frequently. It's right, yeah, uncomfortable because- when we see the girls, like we're just on the girls' faces after we've yeah. seen him squeal to a halt. And we see, like, we're focused on Annie because she said it. When it just kind of dawns on them and her specifically that, oh, this this might be a thing. Like, he's, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, shit. Yeah, yeah so, so suddenly this goes, who's yeah. In that I, car? That's kind of the other thing, too, is you wonder if these characters aren't covering their nervousness with this bravado. But ultimately, it's empty bravado, because if that dude stomps on the brakes and comes out with a fucking knife, then they're they're fucked. And, you know, so but they never really worry. Like, none of them, even Lori, after all of this, they don't really put much credence into anything that they've well, seen. And that's my point, is that for if you're a teenage girl up to this point in your life, there are guys who are abrasive and forward and everything else. But the kind of weirdos who are off in the distance, like those are the ones that it's okay to raise your voice to and tell them, hey, back the fuck off mm-hmm. because they're scared of you. Yeah. And when you when you do that, when you raise your voice to someone and they're not actually scared of you, yeah. holy shit, does that change the dynamic of that moment in an instant when he hits those brakes? Yeah, who is it's that? so creepy when he does that. And as an audience, we're like, oh, shit, because we know who's in that car. And also the fact, you know, it's registering to us that, you know, this is the first time he's gotten hot about something. I, I do like that these girls have a lot of verve to them. They're funny and they're sexy and they're kind of goofing around. And, they, you know, they, they regard life with, like, a lot of humor. And even though they're kind of elbowing Lori, like, they don't mean anything horrible by it. In the best yeah. way of teenagers, like, they have this just spunk and energy and yeah. literal lust for life. You'd want to hang out with them. Mm-hmm. So much of the dialogue among these girls, I think 100% is about dates and men and thus sex. This mm-hmm. is a film that would fail the Bechdel test like there's <laughs> no question that everything that is on these girls mind to like a ridiculous extreme where they're even relating michael myers to well maybe he's a date maybe he likes yeah. you maybe you should go out with him they, they've got one thing on their minds yeah. like literally literally like, and and he, yeah everything is filtered through that lens yeah i i, I know that like john carpenter is not saying and deborah hill wouldn't have said this either that like it's not like they're not doing it because it's a cautionary tale they're not doing it because they are conservative or whatever but this Mm -hmm. script is all is literally saying and i'm not exaggerating i i really am not that that girls of this age all they fucking care about other than Lori, is men and dates and your romantic prospects and Laurie well, think, gets looped into it 
That's it. That's what I'm saying. Even Lori, eventually, what you discover is that secretly all she's been thinking about is Ben Tramer. She pines, but she feels embarrassed for her own sexuality, whereas the other two girls are very uh, open about it. And speaking of that, that scene with the bushes, is Lori sees Michael Myers, because you know, presumably Annie pissed him right the fuck off enough that he pulled the car ahead and got out, hid behind a bush to stare at them as they're coming. But then when he's noticed, he retreats. He's like, not yet, not yet. But when Lori tells Annie about, you know, hey, there's that creepy guy behind the bush, what does Annie do? Without hesitation, she immediately stalks up to the bush to go, hey, creep, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's zero fear with these girls. And Annie I, is I have to drunk w- on her own sexual power. Well, one of them, their dad is the sheriff or the cop or whatever. Right, that you has know, to so fucking the- empower her, right? <laughs> one of the weird vibes of this movie is that, like, you can be a little bit of a creepy stalker as long as you're good looking or, Oh, you never know. Like, <laughs> like they, they give Michael these allowances, um, Linda yeah. and, and Annie that are yeah, that's right. a little disturbing. Yeah. And Lori's like trying not to buy into it at all. And I think that yeah. the idea that when she has cold feet about Ben Tramer, we don't know why, but the one biographical detail we get about Ben Schramer is that he's out drinking with another kid. And that doesn't mm. sound like a Lori thing. Like, that doesn't yeah. sound like something Lori would be impressed by. And yeah. so I'm thinking, like, maybe part of it is just Lori doesn't want to deal. She doesn't want to have a romantic relationship right now or whatever. But I think, like, a little bit of subtext is that. The one thing, even though, like, Annie thinks of Ben Tramer as beneath her, I think we get that mm-hmm. vibe pretty clearly. But, yeah. like, Ben Tramer's out getting drunk tonight. So, I think yeah. that might be part of why Lori's not into him. 100%. Wait, Ben Tramer sounds pretty cool, guys. Let's not start Yeah, to- <laughs> uh, well, it's like, he's been told through the grapevine that uh, Lori's interested in him, and was he doing it's like he, he could swing by and say hi and picture some game, but instead he just goes, gets hammered. <laughs> right. Oh, by the way, I think I, we haven't, I haven't done the research yet, but I remember hearing somewhere along the line that, that Ben Tramer does die um, between this movie and the next movie. Like in the, in the second film, he dies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't think we see it on camera, but Ben Tramer does not survive uh, Halloween. I can't swear this is correct, but I think that Ben Tramer is the guy who gets hit by the car in the Halloween, in the Michael Myers mask. Oh, my God. They think that it's Michael Myers, and then you subsequently later learn that it was actually Ben Tramer. I could be wrong. That's well, because okay. uh, the idea that we get with the hardware store being robbed um, mm-hmm. is that one Halloween mask is stolen and some rope and two knives. So we're, we're meant to believe that this, this Halloween mask that uh, Michael wears was widely available at this time. Yeah, he only needed one. He didn't, he, he didn't feel the need to grab a spare. I, I actually I thought... Got... I heard, like, I, when I, I watched this movie with and without uh, subtitles, and when I just mm-hmm. heard it, I thought he said masks. So I was thinking, oh, did he grab a couple, and he just, like, picked this one, and, like, he had an yeah, alternate? He, but, no, yeah. I, ultimately, the subtitle said one. Michael Byers doesn't 
handcraft his mask. It doesn't come to him by, uh, you know, or like uh, Jason with the sack over his head or Leatherface especially. He literally just walks into a store and takes it off the shelf. So, yeah. It's like, <laughs> well, and that, so that dovetails it, it, with him picking up the mask off the floor in the open. Where, yeah, that's true. Like, it doesn't seem like that's a big part of this. He's just like, oh, well, that's there. And then he likes yeah, it. Yeah, he's a mask-wearing psychopath, but... The, his masks come by happenstance. He probably got. He was probably way more interested in the knives and the rope. The scene with the mask reminds me of the movie Chaplin, when you see sort of Robert Downey Jr. like in the way that the Tramp character comes together for him. That like he like holds out his hand and the the hat just kind of rolls onto his head, and then there's the <laughs> cane, and like Michael Myers walks in and is like, "Yes, that there's the mask. That's one little." <laughs> See, when you're looking at the short films that I want to see come out of this, I want to see Michael Myers' driving lesson, and I want to see Michael mm-hmm. Myers, like, uh, in the hardware store, picking out. Montage, where he's, like, trying on different masks. And- <laughs> yeah. yeah well, well, you, know, you know, back in the 70s, when, when I was a, in kindergarten, which is about when this movie came out, uh, the big deal for Halloween costumes was this kind of thing that you would get at Walgreens, where it was kind of a plastic mask held to your face with a rubber band that went around the back of your, your head and then like a, a plastic poncho that would have like the rest of it. So uh, I, I, I had a lot of friends who were Chewbacca or King Kong. I, I think I was probably Darth Vader, I believe, at some point in time. Yeah, I, I have to wonder if given the time frame, he ran a hand down a long shelf full of these things and what if he had chosen uh, King Kong or Tweety Bird? Well, yeah, that was my thought when I thought that the sheriff said he stole a couple of masks. And it was like, oh, you know, I want my options. And this feels right, but it could have gone the other way. Um, But it's also funny that, like, that mask doesn't really exist. It was a spray-painted William Shatner mask. So, like, nobody would be, oh, yeah, I want to wear this blank human, semi-human face. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's still very strange and customized, but the movie solves it. Yeah, tying into the, the concept of Halloween is we have a guy in literally a Halloween mask doing the murders. So. But I think it's funny. I mean, I think it's worthy of note, like when we compare the hockey mask or Freddy's burned visage massage to this, it's like very... He's chosen just a blank human face, which in some ways is creepier than anything. It's such a non-specific and generic thing. But it's like, yeah, it's recognizably a face, but that's all there is to it. Unlike, say, Ghostface, where it's like, I'm a scary guy. Right, like, yeah, the Ghostface is so exaggerated, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, you're right, it's the opposite of that it lends itself to the character. Uh, that's what Loomis describes him as, as a blank. There's nothing behind the eyes, but evil, there's no soul there. There's nothing there. So of course he looks like a human, but he's blank. Well, we'll get to it. But I, I think the, the things that he does with the sheet and Bob's glasses is not exactly generic. Like there's something no. weirdly specifically yeah, no. cruel about that. I did just want to point out that I once wrote a pilot for William Shatner playing himself. Obviously, it didn't go anywhere, but one of the storylines I had planned was that he learned that the uh, mask of Michael Myers was based on a William Shatner mask and set out to sabotage the newest John Carpenter's Halloween movie. Uh, it's too bad that that didn't take off, but boy, I, that was funny. 
That sounds like a TV show I'd like to watch. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I'm I'm hoping this podcast will be the springboard that gets it to Shatner. So if you guys know him, anybody, any listeners, I I think what needs to happen is in the new Halloween film, Michael Myers is finally cornered and somebody yanks a mask off. It's William Shatner all this time. <laughs> Brilliant. I think they, they yeah. pull the mask off and it's Scotty. No, he's dead. Shit. <laughs> what do you Sorry, want? John, I, John, I pick, your, pick your moment. Sorry. <laughs> hey, kids. Happy Halloween. Yeah. <laughs> Motherfucker. Yeah. One last thing that I want to throw out there tonight is that the there's a lot of phone shit in this film. And it's funny because it feels really forced because Jason, uh, or I'm sorry, Michael, <laughs> Michael does not use the phone at all in this. Film. Well, he does once. Well, he picks it up. He listens, but he doesn't call anyone. He doesn't do he's anything. Strangles but, somebody with one. <laughs> yes. He's got, his own, he's got his own use for a phone, cell phone. Absolutely. He, he dials 976 evil, but it happens <laughs> off camera. <laughs> But like the idea right. of phone gags in this film seem to come from Black Christmas, uh, I would mm. say for sure. Yeah, like they're like, oh, we need to have phone gags in this movie. The audience is going to expect some phone stuff. Like they're going to expect that Jamie Lee Curtis gets some phone calls because they make a big deal out of the phone calls. But yet, like, yeah, I mean, realistically, it's it's never Michael calling anyone. Michael never calls anyone in this movie. And it's just, it really strikes me that Black Christmas and such made a big impact on, on Carpenter and Hill. So they felt like they had to service that because there's this weird tension when the phone rings and yeah. Lori doesn't want to pick it up. It's a loud, startling sound that makes the characters jump and it makes the audience jump a little bit. Because it's unexpected, but at the same time, I think it's a little bit of a subversion of, you know, the urban legend quality of it. Because you know, it's very obviously drawing on, you know, the babysitter kind of, you know, or you know, urban right. tales. The audience is familiar with that set of urban legends. Then they're waiting for the creepy phone call to happen, and it, and every time it doesn't, it ratchets up tension a little bit more. But you know, it kind of lends itself to the character of Michael Myers because he just never speaks. Does it just feed into our perception of teenage girls at the time that the phone was just sort of central to their social life? I think that that's definitely present, but like the the film seems to be touching on this these suspense uh, tropes, and but doesn't really go with it because it doesn't actually fit the story or or this villain. But they seem to be like, yeah, we acknowledge that, like. The phone ringing should be scary, and you know, instead of it being him, it's like Annie, and she's chewing food, and you don't know, like you know, what's going on. And then later, she's actually being killed, or it's actually it's not Annie, it's Linda, but yeah, um, you know, Lori thinks that it's Annie, and like that, the phone is weirdly important in this film. Even though yeah. Michael never actually makes use of it in any, you yeah. know, he's not fucking with you on the phone. That's not his thing. Right. Yeah. Um, multiple times, Lori gets uh, strange phone calls late at night while she's babysitting, in which the speaker on the other end is garbled in some way. 
and uh, neither in you know in none of those zero percent of those times is it the actual villain. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that it's you know this is a clever subversion of the urban legends that is part of the DNA of this movie. I agree. I absolutely I agree. I want the the funnier die video that is a phone call between Jason and Michael Myers. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, way back when Saturday Night Life used to be funny. They, they had a skit where it was uh, Tonto Frankenstein and Tarzan singing a Christmas carol. Yeah, I saw and, that. Yeah. You remember that? It's like, <laughs> way, way back in the misty past. <laughs> so oh, Phil Hartman. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess we should call it there. Um, any final thoughts on part one of our Halloween double podcast? Uh, let's start with you, Mike. I've watched this movie literally dozens of times. I've had conver- lengthy conversations about it with other horror slash film nerds in the past. But at the same time, like every time I roll up on this film, it's still got something more to find uh, and more to realize. I, whether the filmmakers even put it there or not, but eventually – you know, when you make a film, it's like sending a kid off to college, you know, uh, and, and the audience becomes as much a part of the, the film as the people who made it. You know, I, I, and this movie's been in my life for so long, and I never get sick of it. I've watched it so many times, and it, it never, you know, I never, you know, I mean, there have even been times when, like, Evil Dead 2, I've been like, oh, yeah, here's a part where you da 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 and I, I've never gotten to that place with this movie. So I don't know. It, it's, it's got a really special place for me. Putting aside the fact that, like, in some ways, Black Christmas really is the, the true Bible of this genre, I would say that this film establishes so many tropes and so many. It's the blueprint for slasher films and, for some ways, modern horror in general that watching it feels like reconnecting with just the the primal truths of the genre and some of the things in this film that have been slavishly aped and emulated and copied mm-hmm. almost feel like ridiculously exaggerated that like some yeah. people are like oh yeah this is this is what it must be and so mm-hmm. they completely multiply a lot of the things in this film to sometimes absurd extents. Yeah. But, I, I mean, even, even black Christmas is, it's still enough of a, it. It's not quite there yet. It's still enough of a chrysalis. Yeah. I want to say it, it's still like kind of half, uh, whodunit mystery thriller. Uh, whereas this is so prime and primal it's like it's it's an Ur movie. It's, it's less of a made film than it was found, you know, that came to us out of the ether of uh, of our subconscious. Well, I mean, I feel like even the relationship of the murders to teen sexuality, in some ways, it's somewhat subtle in this film. Somewhat, you know, being the operative word, but like the fact that that became it, like that was the takeaway. So many aspects of this film are just like, oh, well, that's what Halloween did. So we're going to do that exactly, but we'll do it times five. You know, like there's mm-hmm. so many things that this movie, almost by happenstance, I believe, just became the template for slasher films and for horror in general. 
that like yeah. it's the it's it's the bible of of a genre and so a lot of things that in this film you could you could debate whether Deborah Hill or John Carpenter like how calculated were they but they the choices that they made would end up influencing horror for a generation it's not lost on me how many times in the course of this conversation I keep wondering and asking, is this the first time we've seen this? Is this the first time we've seen that? Did a movie ever do this before? Did a movie ever do that before? And it's not just one thing, man. No. You know, it's not like just the found footage thing, and that's the one thing they hang your head on. It's like it's idea after idea after idea after idea after idea. And that's why, you know, I, I and again, it's – but at the same time, it doesn't feel like it's this brain – banking shiny new subversion of I, I we were just talking about subversion of the phone call but i mean that's as close as we get it's still drawing from such primal ooze storytelling that it's mostly the delivery that's new but the foundation is is you know the clay of of our subconscious well this film combines so many things that were urban legend and true crime and you know, babysitter murderers and escaped lunatics from the asylum. And it combined all these things that were floating around, but it did yeah. them in a combination that ultimately just like crystallized it. Yeah. I mean, kind of the same way that, that Star Wars and Raiders Lost Ark have, have, you know, have and continue to have so much incredible power because they're drawing from an older form you know the the pulp adventure story you know uh you know leading into the the serial adventures you know it's you know it's again it's drawing on primal clay to build a, a new delivery on it well in the sense that star wars and raiders of the lost ark will always be more remembered than the vast influences that inspired both of them respectively mm-hmm. yeah uh this this film will be remembered you know, I mean, not to say that Black Christmas or, you know, like the films that we've mentioned, they're not always going to be, um, you know, they're not lost to the sands of time. But like the movies that really put it all together and, and synthesize the ideas that are going to be relevant for 30 or 50 years, like those are the ones that are, are highlighted. And this is yeah. one of those films. Of all the movies that we have talked about on this podcast, there are, I think, two that still, even in my adulthood, give me nightmares. And one of them is Night of the Living Dead. I still have nightmares of being trapped in a house with zombies trying to get in and trying to shore up windows. And something about that touches something so primal in me that I still wake up in a cold sweat. And Michael Myers is the other one. It's I to this day I still have nightmares about Michael Myers. I mean that's I, I don't know what higher compliment you can pay to a horror film. Ten years separated those two films, you know, between '68 and '78, and yeah, those films are both like created blueprints for dozens or hundreds, if not thousands, of movies that proceed that followed them. So mm-hmm. I think that's a good point to end on for tonight. But uh, yeah. we'll be back next time, uh, hopefully, like, in a week or so. And we'll finish this bad boy up. 